Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. 11 20, 20 11. That's just, that's just freaky, man. The music is reversible, but time is not. Turn back, turn back. I hope you're doing very well. We are going to skip my scintillating intro with the flash pots, bat wings, and disco dance moves and go straight to the callers. Ladies and James, we have a caller on the line if I am right. Uh, looks like this gentleman. Oh, uh, no. Okay, so you are, you, you uh, Mr. JJ, uh, go ahead and unmute yourself and have a chat. You're up. Hello there. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm going by the alias John Johnson. Um, Is your middle name big? Um, no, it's not, but that would be clever. I should uh, <laughs> incorporate that into my uh, anonymous alias. Um, so um, I guess – how how formal is this? I haven't uh, prepared anything. Um, I just had – What are you to... – um, sorry, um, what are you wearing? <laughs> wow, it's that informal, huh? Because um, I'm wearing a smile and a stiff breeze. So please go ahead. Um, so – I've just uh, I, I've I've uh, I really like um, free market anarchism and specifically anarchism in general. I've been drawn to it for a number of years and read a bunch of books, uh, mostly coming from you know the more I guess you could call it traditional anarchist uh, tradition, like uh, Goldman and that sort of thing. Uh huh. Um, and Emma Goldman for those who yeah. don't know. Anyway, go on. And. Um, my the the problem that I come up with, um, and I'm having a hard time finding a, a satisfactory answer, is how do you um, how do you enforce ethics, like ethical behavior, and how does that how is that incentivized um, in large scales? All right, um, that's a great great question. That's a great question. Uh, I I'm gonna question you because it's more fun for me that way okay so um if, if ethics is enforced is it really ethics i uh i well the enforcement i guess would be unethical but if you're no no enforced, sorry not that it's unethical but if you like it, it, it to enforce ethics because there's there's two realms of ethics at least in the way that i i look at it right so there's there's ethics uh, what i call virtue which is positive actions like honesty right Mm-hmm. And that's sort of positive uh, virtue. Uh, and then there's immorality or evil, which is, you know, shooting, raping, killing, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, the way that I've worked it out in my free book, Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics, available at freedomainradio.com forward slash free, 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 uh, is that you can, you are justified in using force to defend yourself against the initiation of force. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't shoot someone for being like for just lying to you about something fairly inconsequential. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I sort of want to understand what it means when you say enforcing virtue. Okay. What is it? Do you mean like the positive virtues like kindness, honesty, compassion, consideration, integrity, or do you mean just like people running at each other with chainsaws? No, it's a little bit more uh, subtle than that. Just like, um, it seems like in the business world, um, being an asshole, uh, can bring you pretty great rewards if you really, you know, stick it to people and you expect, uh, you you know, put unreasonable expectations on people that that will um, better enforce, that will that will encourage people to be more productive. 
Can I give um, you an example? Just to make sure we're on the same. I'm just I'm re, I'm plowing through this biography of uh, Steve Jobs at the yeah, moment. Yeah, so yes, yeah, so along you know. along those lines. Yeah, that's right. So at the very beginning, uh, when he was working for Atari, um, he was asked by the head of Atari to design a breakout game, and he was not the greatest programmer or engineer in the world. So he turned to his his good friend Wozniak, uh, and he said that it had to be done in four days. Now, this wasn't true. It wasn't true that it had to be done in four days, but Steve Jobs wanted to go apple picking uh, at a sort of farm, orchard, slash commune that he was involved in. And so he basically lied, and, and Wozniak was up four days straight finishing this thing when there was actually no time pressure uh, or requirement to do so. Uh, is that the sort of stuff you mean? Exactly. Right, right, right. So, uh, so uh, that's lying, uh, clearly. Uh, that's misleading someone. And um, I'm not sure how that needs to be enforced. Like, what, what, what would you suggest? Meaning, how, how do we, like, how do you incur, how do you incentivize people? How do you remove the incentive to put those sorts of unreasonable demands on people? Well, volunteerism, right? Sure. Like, but for example, at 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 my place of work, um, there, my, I I'm sorry, have a, we just kind of, we just kind of skipped over that <laughs> as if that was an obvious answer, but it, it, it certainly may not be as obvious to everyone in in the call. Yeah, but look, here, here's here's more what I'm, I'm uh, I guess. Uh, okay, you, you go ahead for. with your example. Um, at at my place of work, um, you know, I I work there voluntarily. I get paid decently, um, but you know, I have a particular uh, supervisor that um, I'm not particularly fond of because he puts unreasonable demands and gets you know disproportionately upset about minor. Uh, minor things um so and it seems like you know the product of that is good i mean besides for having a stressed out workforce you know he he things are profitable so it seems i guess it, the question is more about the profit motive and how do you, you know how do you avoid you know people that are in in a more general terms not in this my specific case but as a society how would um how would the extreme actions or, or unethical actions or just not nice actions be incentivized you know when well i'm I, i'm not sure i i'm sure I, i'm not sure i understand the problem so let me put it to you sort of another way right mm -hmm. uh, let's say that some guy is a real jerk to the women he's going out with mm -hmm. right like he he tells them that he's uh, he's going to go and visit his sister and he's actually going out and having another date right he's double dating he's late he's you know he just calls up for booty calls he kind of treats them pretty badly right mm -hmm. and um what would be the solution to that problem well i mean i guess the guy would eventually get um caught or something like that or you just yeah but then he just wants on to some other woman right yeah sure i mean this guy is free to do whatever he likes it's just you know how do you uh, how do how are the victims uh, saved from these sorts of people, or how are their incentives so that you know that sort of behavior is not is not um, isn't profitable? Like it's it's profitable to be a jerk, is what I'm trying to say. And yeah, I feel look, like if, they if would you be... have some sorry, if you have some aspect that certain women really want, right? So it, it, let's say that you're just some chiseled, godlike looking fella uh, who's a Calvin Klein underwear model and uh, you know has uh, 
uh, apps that you could uh, bomb the Death Star through and so on, then um, uh, certain women may for you know may overlook your cheerless behavior for the sake of arm candy, for the sake of being seen with such a good-looking guy. And, of course, men do the same thing with uh, women as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the only way that I can think of to challenge this kind of behavior is to, uh, to, you know, so let's talk about the women, right? So women who's, there's some guy who's a good-looking guy, but he's a real tool. Well, uh, the only thing that I could suggest that would uh, help this kind of behavior would be to raise girls with such a high level of self-esteem esteem, and such an expectation of being treated well that if this, when this guy treated them badly, they just have nothing to do with him. Or they'd see straight ahead, straight up front, they would see very clearly that this guy was a tool posting on his look and that, and they would simply reject such a possibility Thus, forming the guy, uh, just in a sense, in for- requiring that the guy reform his actions if he wants to be with any kind of women. So, mm-hmm. it, it, like any kind of quality women. So, the more quality women with, with high self esteem that there are in the world, the less that jerks will be able to get away with being jerks. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, I mean, a woman has to be raised uh, pretty badly in order to be, in order to accept abusive behavior. So, you know, raise, raise girls well, and these guys won't be able to get away with the kind of crap that they they get away with. Now, in terms of the workforce, um, the same thing would would have to occur, I think, right? So um, you would have to raise people with such a high level of self-esteem that they would not be tempted to work for somebody who was abusive uh, and um, that therefore the, the managers would have to figure figure stuff out that was different. I mean, to take a, a silly example, this is an extreme example, but I think it's pretty, pretty relevant. Um, when you were a slave master, right? You were a slave master uh, in the old South before slavery was, well, before the government stopped enforcing slavery. You could you know, scream at and whip your slaves and, and this and that with impunity. And then once the slaves were free, you couldn't do that to your factory workers anymore, right? Uh, at least not really. <laughs> it would be pretty rare. Mm. And so then you would have to adapt to that new environment because you, you were just in a different environment. And the only way to change the environment in the long run is through raising – I mean I don't just mean like we have to start with, with kids and there's no other way because, I mean, you have to start with people who are parents or who are going to be parents and convince them to use peace and, and respect and raising their kids and so on. And in this way, uh, you know, assholes would be exposed. Like trolls on the internet only survive because people don't see what they're up to or they, they've sort of been blinded to it through prior traumas. And so the way that you deal with trolling on the internet is simply to give people the tools and the self-esteem and the confidence to recognize that, um, you know, when someone's being a troll and uh, nobody would engage and interact with that person. So I think that's the way to do it. Okay, so it seems like um, that um, being a jerk would be less profitable in a society of you know, free individuals because, you know, they would be raised or um, everybody would have, there'd be enough people that would hold, you know, not being a jerk as a a value that, you know, they wouldn't be able to get away with it. They just wouldn't be able to find workers or or whatever the case may be. Well, it would, sorry, but it wouldn't just be employees, right? It would also be customers, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if somebody's a jerk, then they're a jerk to their coworkers. They're a jerk to their customers. They're a jerk to everyone. So, I mean, they're not even going to get into that position because someone has to be promoted and someone has to do the promoting. And if somebody promotes a jerk, then somebody is a jerk, mm-hmm. right? 
So it's endemic within the whole system when this kind of behavior is going on. And so if you have some, you hire somebody who's a jerk, A, you'll fire them. And, uh, and, and B, obviously, <laughs> since you're firing them, you're not going to be promoting them to positions of power. Because being a jerk works in a way only with traumatized people, right? It only so? works with traumatized people. In, in the same way that whipping only works for slaves. Uh, and so you raise people who aren't traumatized and being a jerk is going to be economically unproductive. Because you won't be able to get people to work for this guy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, well, also, sorry, I, the other thing that I would imagine, I would anticipate, is that um, if I wanted to go and work someplace, I would want to go and find out what this boss is like. Right, so I'd go to the I'd go to the company and say, "Huh, okay, that's interesting. So the, this guy's going to be my boss, which means he's going to have power and authority over me, and so on." And you know, I mean, I got a funny sense of him maybe during the interview, but I just want to double check. You know, I mean, if you go and buy uh, <laughs> a fifty dollar headset, sometimes you can have to run through a credit check uh, if you're buying it on credit. And so I would simply go to the company and say, "I would like to see." the ratings that this employee, the employees have given this manager uh, over the past couple of years uh, and the comments that has been delivered about this manager. And if the company refused to give me those, I just wouldn't work for the company. I mean, just wouldn't because, I mean, obviously, right? And if the company gives me the reports and it's like, oh, this guy's great. I love coming to work. He's enthusiastic. He's positive. He's exciting. He's motivating. Uh, you know, with this, I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> let, let me go. Uh, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. And, uh, of course, if he's, you know, he's a jerk and so on. So the information availability, um, particularly through the internet, is is radicalized. It, you know, the only reason it hasn't f- completely radicalized society is because there are so many government laws preventing the dissemination of information. Uh, but um, but that would be another way that I would uh, I would see it working. Okay, C- can I uh, ask uh, another question? Um, I think you was... just did. It was... Okay. <laughs> uh, um, the do do you I what do you recommend? And about um, political action, like f- the, the most uh, pertinent example I was thinking about is this recent bill, the Stop Online Privacy Act. Do you recommend people uh, getting involved in that in any way? Or how do you recommend? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm i not getting involved in it. I mean, I think it's a contemptible and vile piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't, you know, I mean, pe- the petitions and, and you know, petitions to the government. Uh, is all all kinds of nonsense, right? I mean, uh, I would like for Amazon to stop selling the child abuse manuals that masquerade as Christian child raising books. I signed that petition because that's private. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, the reason, I don't know, I mean, because it's, it's really important to understand the reason why this is, is going on. The reason why this is going on is because Congress is so unpopular and, and Washington and, and the government, particularly the federal government, are so astoundingly unpopular that what they do, what they're terrified of is, is, is the media turning against them, right? Which means that um, they are portrayed as, you know, endless villains uh, and not just the people because, you know, the system doesn't mind individuals being portrayed as villains because you've got the bad apple, blah, blah, blah. But when the system itself is portrayed as evil and, and unsu- unsustainable, uh, unsurvivable, I mean, they're, they're very afraid of that. And artists have enormous power in society. Most people get their education about the world, such as it is, through art. And so they're very afraid that the artists are going to turn against them. 
And so what they do is, I mean, this is a continual process. So it's been going on as long as human society has been going on. Um, you know, the guy who could paint the king in a cave 20,000 years ago as a noble He-Man warrior with a big swinging pendulum penis, uh, he was given three extra helpings of gruel at dinner time. And uh, so they're, they're, they're handing out the right to use state violence to protect their intellectual property. Um, and and in, you know, in return, they're going to expect favorable portrayals in the media. And uh, so, so that, that's the deal that's going on. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, should we protect intellectual property or jobs that are lost or, you know, or, I mean, that's all nonsense. If the government cared about jobs that were lost, they wouldn't be threatening people with five years in jail for do-it-yourself tooth whitening treatments in malls <laughs> because that's – if they were interested in saving jobs, they would, um, you know, loosen the stranglehold of public and private sector unions on productivity. And, and so, I mean, they're not interested in saving jobs. They're not interested in intellectual property for heaven's sakes. <laughs> I mean, intellectual property in the government is a joke. What they're interested in is maintaining the allegiance of the artistic classes. So, you know, they'll give them – they'll say, here, you can use our violent power to smike down – your enemies, and in return, we expect the quid pro quo of portraying us as noble defenders of heroic property rights. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what's going to happen. So signing a petition isn't going to change that. Uh, isn't going to change that arrangement. I mean, they'll just find some other way to do it, uh, which may be even more heinous. So, no, I, I think you know, strike at the root. Don't don't trim the leaves. Okay. Could um, another question that I had is, where do you um, speak about your ideas uh, regarding parenting? Oh, I have a um, – I mean, you can do a search, obviously, through the website for parenting. But I have – actually, lo and behold, I'll just get it for you uh, – a, um, a feed with my parenting podcasts on it. Oh. So if you go to freedomainradio.com, radio.com, click on podcasts or go to forward slash podcasts, mm -hmm. there is uh, just below FDR total combined feed. There's a philosophical parenting feed. Okay. Do, do you have uh, – do, do you have – um, or do you plan rather on writing a, a book on uh, parenting? I, I just know some people that are – I don't have any kids um, at this time, but I do know people that uh, are – you know, find you – your work's influential that would like to see a book, I guess, about it. Do you have any plans well, to if, write a book uh, on parenting? I don't have any plans – sorry, I don't have any plans at the moment to write a book, but of course, if this is something that people want, I will do it. Uh, I am, you know, I am market-driven. <laughs> so uh, if you want me to write a book on parenting, uh, my experience of parenting and my thoughts about parenting, I would be absolutely happy to do so. Uh, I would be honored and thrilled. But, um, you know, I'm going to just uh, wait and see what the kind of response is for people who would be interested in that. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, you've been a great help. Uh, well, can I, I mean, if, if the, is there anybody else waiting? I believe we do have somebody waiting, but okay. uh, I think we have time if you want to ask another quick question. Um, so do, do you have any just, I guess, tips uh, on how to deal with people that are in authority over you that, um, you know, you're not particularly appreciative of their behavior towards you? I don't want to say they're abusive, but, you know, along those lines. Look, you, you, you just have to not. To? You have to not be afraid. You have to not be afraid. I mean, you just. Ha I mean, uh, look. If they if they're just flat out sadists, then you just got to try and get out, right? I mean, but <laughs> but if they're just like like okay, so Steve Jobs could obviously be a colossal jerk at work. That having been said, uh, it, you know, if people stood up to Steve Jobs, he respected and promoted them. 
And um, there was an instance, uh, I can't remember the details, where he had said, it's going to be this way. And the engineers didn't agree. And they tried to change his mind, but he insisted. And then they ended up doing it the way that they wanted. And his way turned out to be impossible. And when they revealed this, he, he thanked them for not listening to him and for proving him wrong and so on. And every year uh, on the Mac project in the 80s, every year someone would get an award for, the, for standing up to Steve Jobs and so on. And the woman who finally did it after a year of cowing down before him, uh, you know, found it very empowering. He gained her respect. Sorry, she gained his respect. And then he ended up promoting her to director of manufacturing across all of Apple. Uh, so uh, my, my, my sort of experience has been, but you just, you just have to stand up to people. Uh, and, um, like I had a very intimidating boss when I first got my, when I got my very first programming gig, uh, at, um, a trading company. Uh, I was, you know, I was all kinds of at sea. I mean, I was, it was a trading floor. I didn't know much about it. I was working in COBOL, which I didn't know much about, uh, on a tandem operating system, which I knew virtually nothing, or actually knew nothing about. And I had to sort of, you know, sink or swim, go in and, and figure it all out. And I, it was my first professional job. And I felt all kinds of anxious about it. And I had a boss who'd be like, in my office now. And you're like, oh, God, ah. you know, your balls would shrink up, to, you know, pretty much where your cheeks are. And you'd look like a chipmunk trying to store his nuts literally for the winter. And, and, and it would be just like, uh, here, I got a memo for you. You know, it's like, so he would use these, these kinds of tricks. Anyway, so um, uh, one... Uh, anyway, I just sort of decided I, I wasn't going to – I just couldn't go to work and live in anxiety about this guy. And um, so uh, – and he would sort of give you really tough assignments and then come in every couple of hours saying, is it done yet? Come on. What's the matter with you? Right? Anyway, so uh, Jim, his name was. So eventually, uh, uh, fourth time he came in that day when I was working on a pretty tough project, um, I just uh, – I stood up and I smiled at him and I said, Jim, Jim, listen, let me tell you. I promise you. I promise you. When I am done – you will be the very, very first person I tell. I'm not going to go get a coffee. I'm not going to go down for lunch. I'm not going to go to the bathroom. Even if I have to go to the bathroom, go straight to your office and tell you I am done. And that, think of how much time that's going to save you to do whatever else, you, whatever else it is you do with your time. Anyway, so he just looked at me and his sort of jaw dropped. And then he sort of um, turned to his secretary and said, all right, Debbie, call up fire.doc. I've got a letter to print out for this guy. Like he was pretending he was going to fire me for all mm -hmm. that. But, but after that, our relations kind of normalized and, and so on. But um, there are people who will try and bully you. And it's almost like a relief for them if you stand up for them because you're extinguishing the worst devils of their nature. It was, you know, that's sort of a story. So, and, and if you stand up for someone and then they just turn all kinds of sadistic and trolley on you, then I mean, you just got to hold your breath and get out when you can. That's sort of my, my thought. I like it. I like it. Thank you very much. Welcome, I, I will uh, continue listening, but I, I, uh, my questions are exhausted at this point. And don't worry, if um, if it gets you fired, there are lots of listeners who let you live in their bedroom. So, so. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Thank you. Hello, Stefan. Hello. It's Robert. Uh, we spoke about a month ago. Uh, about um, property rights and land, and uh, you had uh, some great insights and helped me understand better about um, how it is one um, owns their land. And uh, there was a request in the chat room to have us, uh, you know, reclarify the basic points of that. And um, if I'm not mistaken, it was basically that uh, you are owner of yourself. That uh, when you create, um, when you 
take anything from the environment to make it into some object or food or whatever, then you're creating something, not just taking it away. And that uh, land exists solely for the productive value that it has, what it can produce for you. Um, ownership of land, unless you can do something with it, is irrelevant. That uh, it's it's only about what you can do with the land. So um, would that be a fair assessment of what we discussed, if you recall? All right. Well, then, um, my question now uh, for this thread is... Um, Identity rights. Um, let's say for the sake of argument that uh, I come up with an invention that I can point at somebody and go, Trick, and poof, I've created an exact duplicate of that person down to their brain um, chemistry and uh, who they are and their identity and everything. They're identical. It's just an identical person. Um, the reason why I do this is because, well, I'm a movie producer and I don't want to pay Tom Hanks all the money that I'm paying him anymore. Now I've got two Tom Hankses and they have to compete for the same amount of money. So um, I've reduced okay. the monopoly problem um, of uh, having Tom Hanks as being a monopoly. Now there's there's competition, so I've reduced my costs. Um would you say that there is a violation of rights there? I have no idea. What, I mean, why are we talking about something that's impossible, at least for the foreseeable future? Um, well, it's to extrapolate to intellectual property that, um, you know, a person's obviously self-ownership and uh, the productivity of their, their work from them, their own lives. They're spending their own, their own live energy to create something. Um, they're obviously owner of those physical objects um, but in the case of mental objects or things that can be copied readily uh, there seems to be a disconnect um, where the um, creative process and the investment of one's um, sweat and life into the creation of this object um, simply because it can be copied um, is no longer valuable. Um, so if we were to go to the root of you know ownership, which is the person, the self, then would being able to copy a person have some sort of innate violation of, of some sort of right? Well, I mean, I'd rather just, I don't know about the sort of instant cloning and all that. I, I mean, I think let's, if you want to talk about intellectual property rights, I certainly would be happy to, but I'm not sure that the cloning Tom, Tom Hanks with all of his memories and skills intact uh, is, a, uh, is a good way to, to talk about things. Well, I'm using it as a, it, I'm trying to, you know, boil it down to the, the starting principles that we work from and we, we work from let me let me sort of ex I'll, I'll, sorry I'll, I'll explain to you the way that that i see property rights in intellectual realm shaking out and then you can tell me if it sort of makes any sense because uh, for me if things are too abstract I, I find it even if i can draw a principle from it, it's hard to move it so I, let's say i write a book right yeah. <clears throat> i write a book and uh, i want to get paid for writing a book uh, because I mean, if I write a book on philosophy, uh, I've invested sixty, seventy thousand hours studying philosophy, and I invest another couple of months writing and editing a book and to create a cover or whatever. So I would like to get paid for that. Um, and so uh, the book is sitting in my uh, on my computer, and I'm certainly not getting paid for it. Now, it certainly is true that if I go put it up on some website, then if somebody reads it, they don't take away my copy of the book. Uh, and, you know, if I create a PDF and somebody emails it, 
I don't end up with no PDF. And that's different, of course, from a car. If somebody takes my car, I don't have the car. But if somebody takes my, my book in an electronic format or photocopies it or whatever or lends it to somebody else, then I, um, uh, I, don't, uh, I, I, you know, I don't lose anything. So, I mean, I accept that argument. I think that's, that's valid and, and so on. But um, the way that I think property rights in intellectual property will, will work out is that there's going to be competing models for financing, right? And it's all, all that has to happen is the public awareness of the needs of artists needs to, I guess, generally increase, which means artists need to serve the people a little bit more than they serve the powers that be, which means stop singing about love and loss and heartbreak and, and going out to a disco and start singing about taxes and virtue and freedom and, you know, let's get a bit more fucking activism into our music and maybe people will, people will feel a little bit more grateful to, to artists, uh, because artists at the moment are massive, shiny, sports-like, disco ball, empty-headed, dance-move nonsense, <laughs> pretty shiny nothingness that distracts people from the exploitations and predations and degradations of those in power. And artists need to be a little bit more with the, uh, you know, clank and steamy balls of 60s radicalism juicing up their snare kits. That would be what artists need to do. And if artists do that, if they do actually start standing for the people and singing about shit that matters and making movies about stuff that matters rather than, you know, can two people like hook up and, and, and still be friends? Like, does it confuse? I mean, come on. I mean, is that really the big problem facing the youth of today? No. So once artists start to help the world rather than use their talents to distract and empty out the world, then I think people will be a little bit less likely to want to rip off artists. That's my particular feeling. I mean, again, I can't sort of prove that. That's sort of my, my thoughts and feelings about it. But there are two ways that you can try and get money for your stuff. You can try and control the digital universe and you can put digital rights management on and you can try and make sure that stuff can't be copied and shared and this and that and the other. And that's all impossible. It's completely impossible because you can just <laughs> put a line recorder on whatever's playing and record something in a non-DRM format and upload it and everyone can have it. You can't stop it. You can't stop copying. I mean, I wrestled with this for a long time, both with my podcasts and with my books. Um, but podcasts, I'd originally thought, wow, I'll charge 10 cents a podcast. I'll and I recognized that not only would that increase people's cynicism about what I was doing, which might be rightly so, but it would also simply pro promote people to uh, copy my stuff and put it out there on torrents and DVDs and whatever. And uh, so then I would neither have the 10 cents nor the respect of giving things away for free. So I chose not to. It was a tougher decision for me to start giving books away for free because I'm old <laughs> relative to a lot of people on the internet and I'm just used to the old school. But uh, you know, I, I sort of challenged myself and said, well, uh, if the books are free, then I don't have to spend nearly as much money on advertising and therefore, therefore, therefore. So, you know, it was, it was a good decision for me. So that the model is that you try and control things and you, you can legitimately and legally do that, I think, even in a free society, right? So you can have a contract, right, that someone, you know, that 56-page Apple contract that I think nobody but one lawyer uh, has um, – and, you know, somebody trying to fall asleep has read. Uh, so you click on agree and, and then you're bound by that contract with the music that you download from Apple or, or wherever. 
And you can do that. And then you can chase people all, all over the internet if you want, trying to, to get them to cough up cash and threaten them and bully them. And all that will happen in the long run is you will piss off and alienate your customers. I mean, that's, that's sort of inevitable. Well, um, But sorry, sorry. Let me just say the other model for, for payment, and, and that's perfectly – you can make a contract with anyone. I can say – I can have a contract with you that says if I hand you this flower, right, you cannot eat this flower. We can put that down in writing and we can make that contract. A contract, I mean, it's obviously a nonsense example, but you can make a contract about anything as long as two people legitimately sign it. And so if I sell a book and say you can't redistribute this book, you can't lend it to your friends, you, well, you know, I, I don't know that I can bind somebody else. I guess they'd be in receipt of stolen property or something if you handed them a book that I'd written. And you can try all of that. That's whack-a-mole. And it's really unenforceable. And I don't think in a free society without the weight, power, and might of the state it would be sustainable. The other option is to do the donation-based model. And that's pretty good. You can, you know, authors only get, you know, what, 6%, 8%, 10% of the cover price. So it would be great to be able to download a book and have, you know, halfway through the book, have an ag screen that says, click here to instantaneously send $1.50 to the author. Yeah, fantastic. Great. And that is sustainable. And I've proven that and lots of other people have proven that. And I think that's how knowledge should be disseminated. But um, as far as the government running intellectual property rights, I mean, it's, it's just monstrous. I mean, oh, it's certainly. just destructive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like all, yeah. It is. It's, it's horrible. Um, well, I guess it's more about um, industries where there is a huge amount of uh, research cost um, to development and then the re the copying of a drug, let's say, for example, um, is relatively inexpensive once the drug is actually created, but the research and development of it is extraordinarily expensive. And so um, the way I'm perceiving dealing with the drug thing, well, let's say you make a, a contract that says, all right, if you're going to have this, if you're going to receive this bottle of pills, you have to sign this contract that says that uh, you will not re uh, reverse engineer the the drug and make a copy. Um, well, it's fairly unenfor unenforceable. Um, at some point, somebody get their hands on a on a pill, um, and then do that and reverse engineer it and start pumping out the uh, the copy, and at a significantly lower cost because they don't have to recoup their investment of research and development. So um, the financial possibility of a of a drug company. Being viable is is almost non-existent at that point. Um, well, sorry, but there's there's tons of things you can do about that in a free society, right? So let's say that you have um, uh, you have a, uh, a bunch of there's a bunch of big pharmaceutical companies in a free society. I mean, they wouldn't be nearly as big as they are now because the state wouldn't be handing over children for them to inject with horrible drugs all the time. But uh, what they would do is they would all get together, I would assume, and pool their resources in R and D, and then share the results, and then see who would be best to market with, you know, marketing or packaging or. Um, you know, the, the, the efficiency of their manufacturing and distribution process. That's one possibility. Now, somebody else could then come and reverse engineer that. But, yeah. but that's, yeah. not, that's not the end of the world because what you want to do to compete with, uh, with this kind of, um, with this kind of um, I don't know, copying, to compete with it, you simply need to up your quality. You simply need to up your quality. So the, one of the reasons people will be uh, frightened about buying generic drugs is that the generic drugs d would not have the same kind of assurance of quality control in the production, right? Uh, I, don't agree I mean, with that. so it, let's say that there's that. Bob's house. 
Well, no, you wouldn't know that for sure if, uh, if it's smaller. It's a possibility, right? So I'm just saying that you would focus on quality, right? So you would say, you know, our drugs come with a guarantee that if you suffer adverse effects, X, Y, and Z, we will pay for all medical expenses. We would give you a million dollars. We will whatever. But the and we guarantee the that thing. all of our – I'm sorry. Go ahead. The copier could do the same thing. So, I mean, that's a non, that's a non point, you know, adding, adding, a- sorry, let me, let me just interrupt you for a second here. Um, do you have business experience in the R and D world or the entrepreneurial world? Um, I've done some, uh, uh, unusual programming and, um, I've had my material copied. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so when you say immediately that the, the other company could do the same thing, um, they could offer the assurances. They could make the um, the claims. And basically, what it comes down to is, if you have a very well established marketing system, and the company that has the most the best most well established marketing system and uh, customer loyalty uh, program or or you know perception um, is going to be the victor, not the company that spends but, money on but research. See- but sorry, but by this by this token, there should be no like by this argument, there should be no garages that repair cars that aren't owned by major manufacturers, right? Um, well, no. uh, or rather, there should, sorry, there should only be those garages because like, so I have a Volvo, right? And my Volvo is 13 and a half years old and it's getting kind of creaky and it needs some money put into it. And I can either go to the Volvo shop, which uh, seems to be quite expensive, or yeah. I can go some generic shop, right? Now, there are times when I'll go to the Volvo shop and there are times when I'll go to the generic shop. I sort of have my choice. And it's, I won't sort of get into all of the details about why I'll make those decisions. But both business models are flourishing even though the, um, the sort of uh, off-market repair shops are, are cheaper. Yeah, but that's, that's because we have – I mean you have to admit that you're talking about a fairly interfered with environment. So, you know, the government intervenes with all sorts of things in, in this particular example that you're giving. So I, I don't think that it's a fair comparison. All right. Let's take another example if you don't like that. So think of the fashion world. Okay. There's no IP in the fashion world, right? Right. Great. Right. Perfect. So in, in the fashion world, uh, if I design some, you know, flaming zoot suit of puppy ejecting death, then someone else can just copy that. They can they can see it on the runway. They can race off and copy it and sell a knockoff. The same thing is true of handbags and, exactly. and a wide variety of other things, right? Exactly. Absolutely. So why why is anybody in the fashion industry? Um, because the, the, t- the groups that have the, the control in, the, um, in that environment are the ones that have the best marketing. Well, isn't that exactly what I said uh, about the, uh, the, the people who are manufacturing drugs with the R&D? They're going to have great marketing. Uh, they're also going to have great quality control because the thing you hear about like the knockoff Hermes handbags is that they're low quality, right? Okay, let's, let's compare A and B. A, company A has great marketing, great quality control. Company B has great marketing, great quality control, and a lot of expenses for research. Company A is going to own company B every time. So every time you've got like this is empirical proof that you've got. Well, logistically, I mean, how can you compete when you have the additional expense without having and your competitor have that exa- that same expense? Because, my friend, human beings do not act only on economic interest. They respond to marketing. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, it's a significant... Look, I mean, look, if, if I had a business model, like let's just say that there was no such thing as tipping in restaurants, right? And I came forward and I said, okay, so I got a business model here. Okay. We're going to start paying our waiters half what they make. Mm-hmm. 
And in return, the customers are going to voluntarily make up the wages. Okay. What would you say? I think it's perfectly legitimate uh, plan if you want to try that. In fact, I, th I thought of uh, an idea of opening a restaurant and not having any waiters or waitresses and offering anybody who would voluntarily like to do services, um, you know, live entirely off of their tips and not, not pay anybody anything as far as waiters, wait staff. Right. So people don't respond just to economic incentives, right? So, for instance, um, uh, people tip waiters, even in restaurants where they're never going to return, because that's a kind thing to do. That's a, the right thing to do, so to speak, and, and they want to show appreciation for a job well done and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, yes, that's, that's true. I don't see, see the application in this example, I mean, in this situation, but... Well, so, I mean, if I was a big pharmaceutical company, the first thing that I'd really want to do is make sure that everyone understood that if they go generic, they will get fewer drugs in the future. Well, and I, I would make that clear. And, and, and what I would do, remember, of course, in a free society, insurance companies would do this, right? Would, would be the ones who would, would likely be somewhat responsible for, for drug costs, right? So I would go to the insurance companies and I would say, look, if you go generic, you will save – according to your statistics and my calculations, X amount of dollars this year, let's say $100 million this year. However, the drugs that we introduce save $25 million every year. If you go generic, we will only be able to introduce one new drug a year instead of five. And so you'll save $75 million or whatever, but you will cost, sorry, let me finish, please. In, in the long run, you will end up uh, spending a lot more if you don't support the R&D for these. Uh, and here are the drugs we have in development. Here's our projected cost savings uh, and so on. And, I mean, just, just to take an example, right? I mean, insulin obviously saves a huge amount of money uh, every year for, you know, millions and millions of people. And so you would go to the insurance companies and say, well, you know, you, you obviously want to be around for the long term. And so uh, we want you to, you know, obviously some people, people below a certain income, absolutely pay generic. We, we you know, we're fine with that. But we, you know, if you don't pay for any R&D, then you are going to start losing money in the long run. I mean, that's, you know, I, I'm just telling you this off the top of my head, but you could certainly make a very effective case for that. Um, I understand that, but it, 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 it tends to depend um, upon a populace that is uh, for you know, has foresight instead of uh, immediate gratification, and that tends to not be the case. I'm sorry, you're saying that people don't have foresight? Um, well, not when it comes to their individual momentary decisions, and when it comes to when they go to the store to buy a bottle of aspirin, they're going to go with the one that costs the least for the most product. I'm sorry, what you're saying is that right now, there's only one product in every category and that is the cheapest one. In other words, there's no such thing as a Maserati or a Rolls-Royce well, or anything other than those the... Two. We're talking about two things that are identical in, in function. Now, there are some people who will choose to buy Excedrin because they've grown up having Excedrin. They've been indoctrinated into the Excedrin lifestyle. They have uh, a positive perception of the name, the brand name Excedrin because of a marketing strategy that worked. Um, but the uh, the people that have never heard of either um, are going to go with the one that's least expensive. Um, but the, again, the, the point is, is that if, sorry, let me, let me just give you something to counter that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, uh, they've, I think they've done taste tests where generic colas are uh, taste. Like people can't tell the difference between generic colas and Coca-Cola, right? 
Um, but generic colas are much cheaper. Well, actually, um, I, I would say that there are there are some differences, but let's just let's just assume that the taste is exactly identical. The difference. Well, I'm, I'm not saying it's exactly let me, let me identical. I'm just thought. saying that let, people let, can't let, tell the difference. Well, let, Sorry, go ahead. Let me finish my thought. Okay, so just for the sake of argument, we got an identical formula for Coke. Okay, and you've got Coke there, and you've got uh, no-name brand Coke here. People are going to choose Coke because of the marketing that Coke did. If no-name brand instead had focused all of their, mar- you know, all of their money in advertising and had a huge campaign that was made made their products line be very well desirable, like let's say um, Apple, um, a new product comes out called um, Mountain Dew, and um, there's this other product called I Mountain Dew, and I Mountain Dew because it's got the I in front of it, seems to have a following and ends up beating out Mountain Dew, even though the company that developed Mountain Dew spent, oh, let's say $100 billion on development of this program, this this product. The marketing is what's going to cause the, the, the person to go to the product. And whether it's marketing on we have safe products or whether it's we contribute to uh, defending the country or we contribute to... Um, helping poor children, whatever those different uh, marketing techniques are, each one of them is going to have a certain amount of budget. And the company that spends money on research has less budget than the company that doesn't. Okay, sorry, I just maybe I missed something. But if people can't tell the taste of something, you said if things are identical, people will always choose the cheapest option, right? No, no, people will choose the one that is marketed best. And one of the components of that marketing is going to be cost. Oh, sorry, what do you mean cost? You uh, mean it costs money to market? Well, the cost of the product itself is a is a marketing gimmick as well. Um, but regardless, there. I'm sorry, sorry. You mean people the price raise sorry. the cost? They raise the price of they artificially raise the price of say Coke as a marketing gimmick. Um, well, in the case of the of the fashion world we were talking about, that's the case. They do that sometimes, um, but it's not necessarily about. The price so much as it is a it's about how much money that the company has to work with for the marketing of their product. I'm sorry, could you just say that again, please? Okay, it's not necessarily about the price of the product. It is how much money the equivalent companies have to invest in marketing. Right. So the company that spends money on R and D does not have the same amount of funds available for marketing and assuming all marketing is equal, the company that has more money for marketing will be able to out. I'm sorry, but marketing is not a cost. Marketing is an investment, right? Right. I mean, you you, you spend a dollar in marketing to get $2 in sales, right? Well, if you have more money available to invest in marketing, then you're going to reap greater rewards than if you have less money, right? Uh, I would say, well, it, I mean, a company that is more profitable has more money. I will certainly agree with that. So if you have a sunk cost called R&D and your competitor does not have that sunk cost or a minimal amount, they have R&D, which is basically to break down your product into what it is to make and, and copy. So their R&D is, oh, let's say, one one-thousandth of, of a percent of, the, of yours. Well – that means they've got that extra money for marketing. 
or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so in that case, the company that is the copier has a far a huge advantage in the marketplace. So the per, the company that is first to market certainly has an advantage, yes. But the amount of time delay to um, reverse engineer a, a, a drug is basically a week in you know depending upon how difficult the drug is and maybe it's maybe it's two months whatever it is um you've already got instead of spending all that money on research and development they've already established a a base of uh, consumers that trust their name their brand name through their marketing and they release a duplicate product and since they're already trusted and they have that marketing in place they are going to beat out the company that had to spend money on research. Yeah, no, sorry, you keep saying the same thing as if I haven't said anything, right? Okay. <laughs> so let's go back to the Coke example, right? Yeah. So Coke costs twice as much as generic, and, and according to the research, people really can't tell them apart, right? Well, it's not about cost. You keep going back to the same thing you're saying, and, and I'm saying that it's not it, – it, it, the cost is irrelevant. It's the, it's the fact that the brand name Coke has been if heavily invested in marketing. Okay, so, so the big drunk companies, they – they do marketing. Well, whatever you want to call it, they can still survive relative to the generics, the same way that Coke does relative to the Coke generics, right? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily put them up against the generic. I would put them up against a company that is entirely based upon um, building a brand and uh, customer loyalty. And their, their, their whole business model is based upon a marketing premise that somebody comes out with a product, they copy it, and they market it. Um, there, there is well, but exactly. sorry, sorry, but you you only copy a product because it's already very successful, right? I mean, there's only generic Coke because Coke is already very successful and has a huge market share and this and that and the other. But let's let's drop that because obviously we're not getting anywhere with that argument. But t tell me, what is the R and D percentage uh, uh, that is spent by a pharmaceutical company at the moment? What's what percentage of their uh, revenue is allocated to R and D? Um. Well, after all the years of being screwed with by the FDA and so on, uh, I'm sure that it's not nearly what it was. But um, at one period of time, I would suppose it was probably around forty percent, fifty percent, possibly eighty percent. I don't, you know, it's you know taking. Well, see, this is numbers. the kind of stuff that you need to look up if you're going to make this. So I've just got a, a website right here uh -huh. where Merck and Company Incorporated spend six percent on R and D. Okay, six percent of its revenue on R and D. And if that six percent was spent on building, no, no, sorry, just just hang on a sec, hang on a sec before we start launching off, right? Okay. See, this is I'm a bit concerned about our argument here because you had you were off by multiples on what you think R and D is. That's very essential to your argument, right? Well, you're talking about now versus prior, prior, and um, let's say if we were to look at the R and D of these drug companies, um, you know, let's say eighty years ago. What percentage was okay? That? What was the R and D? What was the R and D spend of companies eighty years ago? Well, I'm sure it was significantly more than six percent. Well, how do you know? I mean, come on, you didn't make things up. I mean, if you're going to bring facts into the argument, where are your facts? Well, obviously, we're talking is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to to analyze it from a, a logic based you know situation, not necessarily. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to use a free market analysis of a of a of a system that is so pervasively interfered with by government right now, right? Okay, well, let me put it to you this way. I think, I'm, I'm quite convinced that all other things being equal, a company that is, that whose drugs cost 6% more, 
Uh, and that's assuming that the fact that they came up with the drug and have been first to market and have a great uh, ad campaign that has prepared people for the market, they've worked with doctors, they've got their studies done, and they've, you know, assuming that none of that has any effect on their market share, which I think is crazy, but let's just throw that aside for the moment and just pretend that everyone's starting from the same gate. You have one company that says, our drugs cost 6% more than the generic ones. But, but for that 6%, you get new drugs. And their insurance companies say, well, geez, for 6% more, uh, we, we, you know, we're going to give you a cheaper premium for 6% more. Uh, like we'll spend 6% more on drugs. We'll give everyone a cheaper premium because for life insurance over the, cost, over the course of their life, we want new drugs to come into the marketplace. So insurance companies will charge less for drugs that are funded by R&D than they will for generic drugs because insurance companies think in terms of decades for, for health and medical insurance and so on. I'll grant you that. I mean, these are just some, these are just one, some particular examples about, about how it could work. But, I mean, that's the approach that I would take if I was in that business. Well, I would grant you that um, if you're going to be dealing with um, people who are using an, an insurance-based system that the insurer, being that they're in the long-haul type of situation, um, they're definitely going to be um, taking taking that road, and they'll 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 do what you're talking about. I, I could see that would be very viable and reasonable. Um, I just think that in the case of of uh, marketed to public um, drugs that don't have the insurance involvement, that um, it's going to become a, a basically a a non-starter to be a, a you know into the research thing because. Um, you know, if you've got drug, let's say that you're a new start, new starting company that has no brand name loyalty, nobody knows your name. Um, you come out with this uh, drug that solves, um, I don't know, some issue, nearsightedness. Um, then a, the same drug is released under the name Johnson and Johnson. You're at a significant disadvantage because people trust the name Johnson and Johnson. Um, right. And so the, the then the issue comes up it, it, in also when you were talking about sharing the R&D thing, doesn't that create a, a, a cartel? Um, so it, Yeah, I'm, of course. I mean, but there's always going to be competition against the cartel. Um, let me uh, – I'm just going to read. You know, we don't have a lot of facts but some theory here. I think we've got a workable model for why people would pay 6% more in the long run to get or why insurance companies would certainly fund that and would be cheaper. Uh, and of course, this is six percent when the FDA puts in crazy impossible hurdles for people to get through to to get drugs approved, right? Oh, Which yes. wouldn't be the case in a free society. But let's see here. Boop doo doo. So let's look at so. Can we imagine a world? This is from Jeffrey Tucker's excellent book, The Jetsons. It's a Jetsons world. He writes. This is on page hundred and sorry, two hundred and eleven. He writes, can we imagine a world without drug patents? No need to dream. In the sweep of history, patents like we have today are essentially a post-war phenomenon. And prior to that, the industry developed faster in countries without patents than those with them. One way to show that is to examine 19th century chemical production. They tell the story of the French patent on coloring dyes granted to the Lafroussine Company, a patent that pretty well destroyed all development in France, while the absence of patent in Germany, Switzerland, and Britain led to massive innovation and the beginnings of the modern industry. The U.S. was very behind here due to its strong patents. And even in the First World War, the U.S. had to import dyes from Germany in violation of the British blockade. This was how DuPont got its start. In recent decades, there have been pockets of farm patent freedom. Before 1978, it was Italy where a thriving industry existed for a century in the absence of patents. 
The patent accounted for the discovery of 10% of the new compounds between 1961 and 1980. Foreign companies poured into Italy to imitate and develop. But this shut down after 1978, when Italy introduced patents under pressure from foreign multinationals. India then took the position of the free market country, and its industry became a huge player in the generic drug production market, until India too was forced into the WTO agreement and shut down its dynamic market. The whole world of pharmaceuticals is now engulfed in an incredible patent thicket, and people praise all the innovation taking place, but really ask how much prior innovation really owes to the patent, or how much innovation we might experience, or how low the prices would be in the absence of a patent. And, I mean, the book's free online. You can have a look at it. It's a fantastic series of chapters on intellectual property. Highly, highly recommend it. What's the name of the book? Uh, it's called It's a Jetson's World, and you can find it on – you can just do a search for it. You can find uh, the PDF. It's available yeah, yeah. For, okay. for free. But um, uh, so let's see here. Uh, patents had nothing to do with aspirin, AZT, cyclosporin, dioxygen, ether, fluoride, insulin, isoniazid, medical marijuana, methadone, morphine, oxytocin, penicillin, farnobarbital, prontosil, quinine, ritalin, salverson, vaccines, or vitamins. These had nothing to do – with patents, these were all developed uh, prior to or outside the, the patent system. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think we can safely assume that R&D costs in a free society would be cut at least in half, which means that there'd be a 3% price differential between companies producing life-saving medicines. And boy, I tell you, if you get a life-saving medicine from a company, you're pretty loyal to that company. I got to tell you, yeah, you are pretty loyal to that company. I think people – <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm alive, and so maybe I'll spend, uh, you know, three uh, percent uh, uh, more, right? I'll spend uh, what would that be? Uh, 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 ten dollars and thirty cents, rather than ten dollars. I think the thirty cents would be my way of saying thank you to the company for being this side of the deep six. So I think that would have something to do with it. Uh, I also think that, um, again, insurance companies want to make sure that that life saving or or health enhancing drugs keep getting produced, so they would put pressure uh, and and offer lower rates to people who would accept. Uh, the the non generic drugs uh, they would obviously work the people who are first to market are going to make a killing before because everybody knows that like a drug comes out and next week a bunch of imitation drugs come out that those other drugs have been rushed into production and there's a there's a danger associated with that uh, and there's a concern associated with that and so I think that there's many many ways that this can work and of course the other argument would be that it doesn't work now anyway like to have obviously having the well, government sure. do it and sure. all that but i think there's lots of economic arguments as to how it can work there's tons of historical examples uh, i've talked about them before about how this this kind of stuff can work uh, human beings have very very complex as you know i'm, I'm not saying this to you I mean, you're a smart fellow right but very very complex ways of making decisions it's not just about well i can save 30 cents and that's it uh, there's lots and lots of stuff you know the company who made the drug that saved your mother's life they're going to get your business. <laughs> you know, they're just going to get your business. People are funny that way. And I think it's actually a pretty good way of doing it. Okay. Well, um, I, uh, I understand uh, a different, you know, I, I, I think that I can grant you certain points. I think that um, the idea of boiling it down to the, to the cost of the drug is not what, what my point was. But um, I think that you have uh, given me a, a good source to take a look into and, um, you know, Get and more. you did a damn fine job, let me tell you. I'm, I'm sweating. You're making me work for my money. I don't like that. Um, <laughs> but no, thank you. That was a great job. I really appreciate it. Also, um, I had a, a fairly similar type question to what uh, – Sorry, let me just ask if uh, if we have other people because we spent quite a bit of time with this. I just want to ask if there are other people or we have we, some we text do. questions. We do. 
I think we have a, a another caller. I, re- I don't remember what his his name was. I'm, I'm just uh, waiting to see if. Uh... I saw something in there where somebody says, is he going to have time to get to my question? All right. Well, until James gets back so you can ask the question, we'll see if we can uh, take a hack at it. But, yeah, great job. Thank you very much. Sure about that. Uh, uh, I, I, was, I was ready to unmute. Um, we do have a question from the chat. From and... Pumpkin Teddy. Okay. So if it's a question from the chat without someone on the line, then I'll take this gentleman's question because uh, yep. I feel like I need uh, a good round two. Ding, ding. Okay. Oh, Sorry. Go ahead. So that's still with me? Or yes. That... Go ahead. Okay. So um... – one of the things that I found in people that you were talking to, like prior, we had this uh, caller who was dealing with the, their employer and, and they were getting negative feedback and so on. Um, <clears throat> to extrapolate that, instead of being an employer-employee-based relationship, I'm finding it's um, ever since I've uh, been watching your, your work and uh, been converted over to um, being an anarcho- anarcho-capitalist, um, when I express my uh, – views on issues um, in Facebook, for example, um, I just receive tirades of nonstop, you're wrong, idiocy, blah, 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 you know, kumbaya, world doesn't, you'll never happen, um, kinds of things. And I'm wondering if there is a particularly um, best way to achieve, uh, you know, some sort of mutual understanding or how to, how to achieve it. And um, I know that uh, I really like the, you know, I, I respect your opinion. I will not use violence to um, to make you follow what I believe, but would you afford me the same courtesy kind of thing? Um, and I, I also really liked your video called um, – uh, it's basically about uh, – uh, it's a statist uh, – um, not confrontation, but uh, – A statist intervention. Intervention, yes. So yeah. um, that one seemed a bit um, – longer than what I would be able to, to get people to watch. So um, I'm just trying to figure out how do I deal with people that I consider friends um, when some of the things that I'm you know, making them face challenge the very heart of their soul. Like when I suggest to them that spanking is bad and they've been spanking, they know that if they somehow believe that, if they come to the conclusion that spanking is bad, then they've been abusing their child this entire time and said they're awful people. Well, that's a, a horrible thing to, to come to realize. So they, they find I'm sorry, just, just interrupt. I, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, the people who've never been exposed to, to the knowledge that spanking is problematic, I would not put into the category of, uh, of abusers. I mean, to me, there's, there's, there's prior to knowledge and, and after knowledge. And so, uh, you know, I mean, unless they've been like hitting them with rubber hoses or some, some awful stuff, but you know, people who've spanked their kids a couple of times, um, thinking or, or with the, with the knowledge that has been handed down to them, that it's the only and, and reasonable and good way to discipline. And if they don't do it, then they're problematic parents and so on. Uh, that to me is not quite the same as, as a child abuser. But anyway, I just want to sort of mention that, yeah, but, but sorry, they, go on. they'll have that self image though. They'll look at themselves and think, "How could I have done such a horrible thing?" Or if they come, you know, if they if they will entertain my thought that it, you know it is not a good thing, then obviously they've been number one mistaken. So um, being proven wrong is not always a fun, you know, it's never a fun thing. Um, actually, I, I kind of like being proven wrong, but um, <laughs> well, we get into your masochism later. But <laughs> Sorry, well, it on. just helps me know that I, I've learned something new and I've been educated myself and growing in my, in my knowledge of the world. But, um, you know, to a person who's had something deeply ingrained in their, their philosophy of how to deal with their children, which is a huge issue. Um, you know, if you force them to come to that realization, they're going to be very angry with, with you because they're, 
their perception of self as being a good parent um, has been shattered. And well, it's certainly been challenged for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and and so they, these these barriers that they throw up, where they start throwing things back at you and, and become fairly abusive with their language and so on, you know, I can point out, you know, I, I can just say, please stop with the ad hominem attacks and things like that. But um, how do I actually just um, maybe give them bite-sized pieces where we can break apart, you know, these little things? Or I, I just don't know how do you approach people that have been your friends your entire life and you're coming from a totally different world? Um, how do you communicate? Without creating this such a vitriol and, and horror and, and, and uh, angst and a- anger. Sorry, I'm not sure why you'd be creating it. Well, because I'm bringing up a subject that is disquieting to them or challenging their. Well, sorry, but those are two notions. different things. Sorry, I just want to separate those two different things. So you bringing factual, empirical information to people well, sure. is not creating vitriol in them. Well, the the, the end result is <laughs> is is the same. Whether it's the well, no, but, they, but you're not responsible for their vitriol, right? Right. What I'm trying to figure out is how do I avoid or how do I um, ease them into these things instead of being that confrontational, like you know, pointing out something and then they're like, "No," and then I'm like, "Well, yeah," and they're like, "No." So, I, well, f- first of all, I mean, if if at all possible, talk to them face to face, right? Because you know, you don't want to give them asshole internet go-go juice, right? Well, that's a good point. Which is, I mean, people could be all kinds of brave behind a keyboard, right? Absolutely. But face-to-face is, is quite a different matter. You know, you're absolutely correct. I, I uh, talked with uh, some people in person about some of these things, and um, they you know, were far more um, acknowledging of my points and um, willing to hear me out, and uh, certainly more civil. Right, right. Uh, you know, uh, People have these two standards of behavior online and offline. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, particularly with something like spanking. I mean, that's that's a really challenging topic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I obviously can't go to everyone's house, so I have to put stuff out there that's just fact-based. But um, that that gives you some uh, some chance. Of course, the problem is, I mean, are they actually listening or are they just pretending to listen? You know, like nodding well, and sure. smiling and then not going, right? Yeah, that's the case but, with um, both. I certainly would uh, – I would question a friendship where somebody attacks you for giving them factual information. Even if they strongly disagree with that, you know, hey, then come up with counterfactual information. I mean I've had that challenge out forever. I, I put facts out and sometimes I'm wrong and I put, you know, put out retractions and, and I've done entire shows where I'm reading corrections to what it is that I've done. Um, yeah. But you know, somebody who ad harms me, I mean I just – I mean how can that person be a friend? Well, it's a, it's a tough one to get, uh, you know, if you call them out on it and they later apologize and then they, they st- decrease the occurrences and eventually stop doing it, then that's fine. But uh, Yes, agreed. Yeah. But that's pretty rare, right? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, the reality well, is most people, uh, they, they throw their actions into the world like a spear. and they, they just build up a fortification around wherever that spear lands and defend whatever it is that they've done. That's the, the typical reaction. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, look, as long as you're not just insulting people and saying, you know, you bastard rat, bastard child abusers, all of you, you should all burn in hell. I mean, obviously you're not doing that. That's not, I get that that's not who you are. But, you know, if you put the facts out as gently as possible, if people react with rage, I mean, that's that's their deal. That's not yours. You can't control that. Well, you can't they, control that. They, uh, they responded with uh, somewhat rage um, in regards to the um, comparing uh, 
child abuse with the uh, um, finding an Italian that's Catholic thing um, that I shared that video that you, you made and um, they uh, they basically said that I was trolling and so was the video and you know in a, well in a, I'm but trolling look trolling is saying something is trolling is not an argument. I mean, one day, if I ever have the time on my hands, I will gather together uh, one single day's list of responses that I get to what it is I'm doing. You know, emails and board posts and YouTube comments and all of that. I'll gather together because I get like a couple of hundred a day of responses. Yeah. I'm going to gather together. I'm going to read through all of them. And I guarantee you that the likelihood of there being one rational argument, one piece of evidence in any of those hundreds of responses, the likelihood of one shred of evidence and arguments occurring is about one in 10. It means every 10 days, I will get some kind of rational argument. And that's not true. In the Sunday show, I mean, you had great arguments and, and I really respect you bringing your points up and you did a great job. So this, you know, I would count this as one of them. But just in terms of the comments that I get on you know, Facebook and, and YouTube and all that, I get maybe one in a thousand comments has some sort of argument. And the rest of them are just uh, – it's just blurp. It's just embarrassing blurp that means nothing, that has no content. And just uh, all people are telling me is I had a terrible childhood and I'm not aware of it. And, and they, just, they, think that, they think that they're posting something that has some sort of, um, some sort of content and, and, and it doesn't. Yeah. And so – but that's the reality. This is how we know how wretched – the human condition is that that people have had their capacity to strip, uh, to to think, stripped and abused out of them in a horrible way. And I'll give you a tiny example of that. Um, uh, you know, I've you know, people say uh, the first caller was asking, well, how do you enforce morality? Morality is something that children are naturally born with. Uh, you have to you have to really harm children to take away morality from them. I mean, this is just what they're, and this is not just my belief. Uh, this is a pretty well established scientifically through a wide variety of experiments. Uh, on on babies and so on. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Peaceful experiments on babies, and um, so for, for example, so it was on the Liberty Cruise. Yeah. And we 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 met some some friends of ours from California there. And they've got two charming kids, and their son was saying um, he was he was playing on my daughter's iPad, and then my daughter picked up one of his toys, and he said, "I don't want other children playing with my toys. I don't want other children playing with my toys, Isabella. I don't want you to play with my toys." And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he was five, right? I said, oh, that's interesting. You, you do realize you're playing with Isabella's toy, right? And he gave me a long look, and then he shrugged and said, go ahead. Right? That's pure philosophy right there. That is pure. I mean, what he processed there, I mean, he got it immediately. What he was processing was, is there any way out of this universal rule? Because if I say children shouldn't play with my toys, but I'm playing with another child's toys, then I don't have a leg to stand on. And I either have to give up this iPad, which I really want to play with, or I have to let Isabella play with one of my toys. Cost-benefit analysis, it is, I want this iPad more than I don't want Isabella to play with my other toy. Right? Right. Bang on. I know he hasn't gone to a philosophy class, right? I mean, he hasn't studied Wittgenstein. He doesn't know postmodernism from the nose he's constantly digging into. So... Uh, but so uh, to me, and I'm not sort of, I know this is a bit off topic, but I just want to mention it. For me, when people say, well, how are we going to make sure people are moral? It's like saying, well, how are we going to make sure that Chinese women's feet grow straight after we stop binding them? Well, they're going to grow straight if you don't bind them. <laughs> and children are going to grow up moral if we stop treating them like shit. 
So pointing um, guns in their face and telling them, "Give me your money so I can educate your children." Yeah. yeah, I mean, if if we if we just let children develop in the absence of aggression and and bullying at at home and at school and 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 at church and 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 all of that and and I mean they they're going to grow up perfectly fine and moral. Uh, you know, if we if we stop making people walk at ninety degrees, they'll stop having back problems. I mean, yeah. it's as simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do uh, thank you so much for uh, you know taking my questions. Um, I did want to mention that uh, you know that call that you were going to make into the show where the guy was inviting lib- uh, liberty to call in um, I call I called in after shortly after you said well I, you're not gonna wait for the you know the the, the whole time um, so that I could get in and talk to them and maybe try to do us proud um, and it turns out that I was on hold basically until the end of the show and um, I was the next caller up but they ended it <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was sorry. I was I was hoping to, uh, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the guy is pretty aggressive, and and you know all of that. But I mean, it's the audience that that matters, right? I mean, we can't just preach to the choir. So um, I'd be happy to chat with the guy. And uh, unfortunately, I was I mean, I was doing some FDR work, so it wasn't the end of the world. But I was on hold for about twenty five minutes, and sort of gave up. My hold time was getting longer because they got really stuck on the caller. Yeah, yeah, it was it was doing that to me too. So in any case, well, we'll look at. Uh, you know, if you do have an interaction with him, I, I would really enjoy because I was listening to a lot of his discussions, and he had several libertarians who were calling in who were really um, floundering with some of the issues, like uh, you know, do you believe that business owners should have the right to um, discriminate against a person because they're black? And um, that stumped a lot of people. And you know, the simple answer is, well, sh- I believe that the solution to that issue is not to stick a gun in their face. <laughs> Yeah, you 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 can't shoot people for being racists. Yeah, I no. mean you can't. Now, it's of a- course, what happens, of course, in the long run, is that the free market sorts this stuff out, and then he's going to bring up the bus companies, and then he's going to fall into that trap, right? The bus companies in Montgomery in the 1950s. Oh, you well, there's an example that. of racism. It's like, well, look, if you don't know your history, don't blame me, right? I <laughs> mean, the history. I mean, the reality is the government was forcing. It was a law that forced the blacks to sit in the back of the bus. Why on earth would the bus company want to piss off blacks who were their biggest customers? Yeah. Anyway, so, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, people can be racist. It's something that we have to tolerate in a society. And uh, I'm sorry about it. And I will certainly make the case for it. And I think in the long run, there's no question that they're going to end up alienating and pissing people off. And, uh, you know, but you simply can't go in and put guns in people's faces for being racist because that's what laws do. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to talking to you on another issue that I come up with later. Thanks. And listen, you're welcome anytime. You, you, you do a great job, and I really, really appreciate your, your uh, insights and your intelligence and your debating skills are, are superb. So thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Okay. Bye. Uh, you know, I'm very much, as I've said before, I'm very much around, uh, I judge people on first impressions because scientifically that's, that's a perfectly valid and healthy thing to do. And you can read... Um, through the book Blink. So somebody says, why do you use the word evil so frequently? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I've used it a few times in this call because I'm a philosopher. Um, I mean, that's like asking a nutritionist, why do you use the word nutrition so much? Because <laughs> they're a nutritionist. If IP was Spanish, do you think Star Wars would be the biggest story adaptation of all time? Absolutely not. No question. If IP was banished, then we'd have no government. And if we'd have no government, there's simply no way that you would have a princess winning control of an empire as the solution to the problem of a corrupt empire, right? I mean, you wouldn't have Aragorn taking over the kingship of Middle-earth as the solution to Sauron, right? Uh, Because the ring of power corrupts all. And 
at the end of Macbeth, you wouldn't have a new king coming in. And at the end of King Lear, you wouldn't have a new king coming in because that's always the fantasy, right? We have a bad king. We have Darth Vader. Let's get the good guys in power because then everything will be just great. So people would look at that and say, well, that was sort of pointless. They just went full fucking circle. We started with an evil empire, and now we've ended with more rulers who are going to get corrupted by power and turn it into an evil empire. What was the point of that? It's like having a movie where somebody struggles to rid themselves of a cancer, and then the end of the movie is, you've got cancer again. Ugh, why did we go through all of that? Hey, Steph. Hello. Hi. Uh, I, uh, I was calling today to discuss a dream that I had. Um, about a half a year ago, and I just before I go into it, I just kind of wanted to mention that I'm nervous as hell, and my heart kind of feels like it's beating in my stomach. Uh, so I don't know if uh, uh, I might be a little bit bouncy uh, on what I'm talking about. So I appreciate that, and I can completely understand that. I mean, talking about uh, your inner life uh, on a show is 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 scary. And I, I completely appreciate that. And I applaud your courage uh, in talking about it. And I'm glad to have a dream to do. It's been a while. So let's get it on, brother. Sorry, let me rephrase that. <laughs> not make you even more nervous. Sorry. No, it's, uh, it's, it's actually, uh, it's not so I don't think it's so much about discussing my inner life. It's more a nervousness to do with you. And I think it's related to the dream. Uh, so I'll, I'll just, I guess I'll get into the dream. And uh, yeah, we could see what we could figure out. But um, so, so about, uh, when I had this dream, it was about six months ago, I was working at a McDonald's and I had this dream where I was working at a McDonald's. It was uh, uh, also, you, you mentioned that you like to hear about dreams that you're in and it just so happens that there's two of you in this dream. So um, I'm, wor I'm working at a, let's get the, let's get this, let's get the cloning guy back on the, uh, on the line. Cause I think he'd like this. Right. Sorry, go ahead. Um, so I'm working at this McDonald's, and it's inside a mall, and it's at the dead end of a mall, uh, sort of like where the bigger department stores would be generally in a mall. But so it's at the dead end of a mall, and it's kind of this futuristic McDonald's. Uh, it has, like, it kind of it's kind of looks like a spaceship or something like that. But it's but it's uh, in, in the mall, and it um, and. and what I'm doing at the McDonald's is I'm, I'm taking customers' orders, and uh, like I'm, I'm at the register, and I'm also serving their orders. And I have this Gatling gun sort of thing. Um, it, I don't know if you've ever seen American Gladiators, but there is this uh, part where there's this Gatling gun that shoots tennis balls. Um, it's like this big machine, and you just hold on to it, and it spits out tennis balls and, and tries to shoot the contestant, but basically people would give me their order and I would it, like, it, I would just be able to shoot the order right at them. Like, boom, here you go. Boom. Okay. So you want uh, a Big Mac meal? Boom, boom, boom. And I would just like press the right button on the machine and it would be able to spit out exactly what each person has asked for and ordered. Um, okay, first of all, I really, really want to go to this <laughs> McDonald's. I really do. I, this sounds fantastic. It's like murder ball with a meatball. I love it. Anyway, go on. So um, I'm after a while of doing that, I, like I, I like I like how the ease of it because at McDonald's it's it's a lot of running around and uh, remembering things, but it 
but in this position, I'm just sort of, I just, the person tells me what they want and bam, it's like that quick. I could get them their order. It's very easy, very simple. They're satisfied. I'm satisfied. But after a while, it gets boring. Like it gets uh, like, yeah, this job is, it's, it's easy and simple, but it's just, I kind of want to break. I want to change. And so I stop doing that and I go to the other side of the McDonald's to look for something else to do, which happens to, I, like, I see that there's some cleaning that could be done. So I go to grab a mop and a bucket and I start to wring it out and set it up so I can start mopping. And you are the manager of this McDonald's and you are wearing like a knitted sweater and you seem like a really soft spoken, sort of like a great leader, like a great manager. Um, like, like this is the type of guy you want as a manager. This guy is very understanding and very, um, like very caring about, about the job. And it, there's also you wearing a suit. Sorry, you're crackling a lot. I'm just wondering if you could maybe move your mic away a bit from your mouth. I'm not sure why you're crackling, but just it might help a little bit. Okay, I moved the mic away. I'm not sure if that's any better. Much better. Thank you. Sorry, go on. Okay. So um, so there's you as a manager wearing a knitted sweater, kind of a soft-spoken, uh, seemingly rational and understanding person. Um, very empathetic and curious. And then there's the, you're, you're also the owner. So the owner is visiting, um, and you're the owner also, and he's wearing a suit and he's very strict and sort of looks at things in a black and white sort of way. Like how could we, sorry, he's sorry. I'm the manager, but sorry, the owner is there and he's kind of nasty. Right. He's well. I wouldn't say he's nasty. He's he's more like uh, Kurt. Right. He's very uh, like cost benefit analysis sort of like cold, uh, abrupt. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, and so so there's two of you. One of you is is uh, the manager, and the other one is the owner of the McDonald's. And and he and the owner staff points at me and says. You see that guy over there, and and the manager. You says, yeah, yeah, I, I see him. That's that's Stephen. And uh, he goes, it looks like he's slacking. He's he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And uh, you know, he. I think he's uh, costing us. I think I think we could we could probably replace him with um, with someone else, and and they would do a better job. Uh, and. The manager step says, "No, no, uh, you don't understand. He, right now, he's going through some tough times, and um, he's a great worker. He, he." Oh, hello. He's great when when he's on. He's he's on. He's like when he's on his A game. He's like one of the best workers. Oh, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead. Did we get disconnected? Yeah. Yeah. We're we're fine. Oh, okay. So the, um, the, the, the owner steps says to the manager step, you know, this guy is a problem. We, we probably want to get rid of him. Um, he's not, he's not good for the company. And the manager step is saying to him, like, you don't understand, like, uh, right now he's just in a bad, in a bad spot in his life. He's having some problems. And, um, but when he's on his A game, he's like the best worker that's here. 
And uh, he, he, you know, he, he uh, trust me, trust me, he, he offers a lot to this company. He offers a lot to the McDonald's. And we, I don't think we should get rid of him that quick. We should give him more of a chance. And the owner says, all right, well, I mean, it's your store. You're the manager. You know, I, I hired you because I trust your opinion. And but I'm just telling you now, this is on you. Like I told you that I think that we should get rid of him. But if something happens with him in the future and he ends up costing us, that's it's on you. Um, it's he's your responsibility. Yeah, so um, and I remember what I was feeling in the moment was sort of I, I could overhear the conversation that was taking place. And I felt a sort of resentment like. Like I felt like I was just a pawn or. Like I was just a pawn in these guys and in, in, in this these guys game and sorry these guys being who the, the two man- these yeah the two you the manager and the uh, owner Seth and I remember thinking sort of like I I'm not even it's not even that I'm not doing any work it's just that I I I got tired of doing that one specific job for a while and. I wanted to do something else. I'm still, I'm still putting in effort. I'm still like, I'm cleaning, I'm bringing, bringing something to the company. It's just shooting the people's orders at them all the time is got kind of boring and, and, and tiring. And I wanted to do something else. And it's not like I'm slacking. It's not like I'm not doing no, any job. Um, so, and then, uh, that's all I recall from the dreams. Right. Right. So you felt that, that the two me's were sort of playing a game. Is that right? Um, it, you said you felt like a pawn in our game? Yeah, it, it kind of felt like, um, yeah, like, I, like I, wasn't, I wasn't brought into the conversation. Like I wasn't included in the conversation. Like they didn't call me over and say like, hey, you know, this is what the, the owner thinks and this is what I think. And, you know, what do you think about it? And. Like it, they were just kind of like talking behind my back, like, uh, let's figure out what to do with this guy, um, and not include right. him. Right. Can I tell you what I think the dream means? Uh, yeah, sure. Of course, you understand. I have I have no authority in this dream. I mean, I'm I'm no professional. I'm just you know, it's just in my opinion. Just so you understand that, right? Let me ask you this: Is it possible that a pettiness? in your temper and a sort of oversensitivity to taking things personally has got you stuck in your life and unable to progress? Absolutely. All right. I'll tell you where I got that from. First of all, you said it was at the dead end in a mall, right? Yes. The phrase dead end is usually associated with job, right? Yes. Like I'm stuck. Are you stuck in a dead end job? No. Right now I'm not. I, I I'm not working there anymore. Sorry, working where at the McDonald's? Yeah, I'm not working at McDonald's anymore. Um, where are you working? I I work for myself. And uh, what is it that you're doing for yourself? You can just tell me very generically. I am. I I. I, I don't know how to say this really. Um. I am well. No, it's, uh, I am a farmer, and um, I 
sell what it, what it is that I farm. Okay, good, good. All right. Um, is this something that you're doing for self-sufficiency or is this something that you're doing it to grow? Both. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, because what are you doing in the restaurant? You're serving people food, right? Yes. And you're a farmer, right? Sorry. Uh, at the time when I had this dream, I was, I, was, uh, I was doing both. I was working in the McDonald's and I was, I was farming. Okay. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that so you're uh, – do you use machinery on your farm? I do. Right. And so that, to me, you're using machinery to produce food in both situations. One is a Gatling gun, right? And one is whatever machinery you use on the farm to give, to give people their food, right? Sorry, I, I think I need to be a little bit more specific. I don't farm anything that people can consume. Uh, oh, I, I see. I see. I, nothing that people will, like, there's no nutrients uh, in what it is that I farm. It's more of a recreational sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. All right, all right. Uh, and um, how are you enjoying your farming at the moment? It's. I, I guess I'm. I'm sort of split. Um, I, I enjoy it very much. It's something that I that I like doing, and I have a lot of interest in. And I I like producing something, and I like. I like learning how to do it better and learning how to perfect perfect what it is that I'm doing. But there's a certain amount of there's like a certain amount of fear or like there's there's a lot of risk. Um, sure. And I don't uh, I don't particularly enjoy the feeling of risk. Right. Right. Can I ask you another question? Sorry, this is a rhetorical question. Let me ask you another question. Um, what is your perception of your customers? Do you like them? Do you respect them? Do you think that they're good people? My customers in farming or the customers when I was working at McDonald's? Farming. If I only have one customer, and I perceive them as it's like a beneficial, it's a mutually beneficial situation. I, I like my customer. Um, everything is very easy. Everything flows very easy. I kind of prefer to just have one customer and uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Okay. okay. I'm just uh, trying to get a sort of mental map. Um, and what did you think of the customers at McDonald's? Okay. That's, that's a <clears throat> little bit more challenging of, of a thing it's but I a part of me hated the customers at McDonald's uh, like someone would step up and there would be a part of me that would be like oh this guy like uh, like it would look for things like this person's stupid like this person doesn't understand how to order at a McDonald's like this person uh, or like people will step up and they'll be like yelling at their kids or something or there'll be some sort of dispute and I'll be like oh these types of people and like I would be very judgmental of the of the people that would be stepping up. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, in the dream, you're shooting them, right? You have a Gatling gun, and that's why it seemed to me that you you've got to have negative feelings about somebody because you, your gun doesn't show up in a dream for no reason, right? Right. 
it's um it, it, it i mean it is a gun but it's it, it's not shooting like what it's it's shooting food and it's it's not no like, no no i got it it's but a, it's not shooting healthy food really for the most part right and if if you, the customers at your McDonald's are anything near the where the customers in I've seen in McDonald's, they're not exactly uh, triathlons breaking vows, right? Or triathletes breaking vows. I mean, they're big people, right? Right. Some of them are. Uh, I mean, I don't. Uh... I know not all of them, but okay. So you got you got bored of that, and then you decide to go to the other side of the McDonald's. Is that the side that is closest to the mall exit? Or is that, yeah, because the front is always, like, the front facing the mall, it's a mall facing one, right? Yeah, it, it, it's facing the um, the mall, the inside of the mall, sorry. So, what do you think, in the real world, what do you think that I think of your farming? Okay, there's, uh, the way that I internalize you in relation to my farming and what it is I do is that's unhealthy, that's vile, that's, uh, it's, it's not a good thing. It's, it's, it's immoral. It's, uh, it's due to childhood trauma that you're doing that you're doing that because, um, you, uh, something to do with, you're not processing something from your childhood and you're doing that and you're acting out bad things from your childhood. And, uh, you, I'm a bad person because of it. Um, I should feel ashamed and, uh, people should disengage from me and, uh, that sort of thing. I could tell you your, your staff sounds like kind of an asshole. <laughs> I just said, yeah, and it's he's. That's I think that I, I'm glad he's not. I'm glad your Steph isn't doing the podcast because it's like, man, that guy's a real prick. Anyway, I just wanted to mention it, but um, right. Anyway, go on. That's I think that's part of a problem that I have. I don't I don't know if it's a problem or not, but it's the way I internalize you. Sometimes it's it's almost it's like, like I'm like a finger wagging Old Testament jerkwad, right? Right, like like like. I don't know. It, it, it pops up and it's like Steph would say, I'm a narcissist. I'm, um, I'm abusive. I'm vile. I'm volatile. I act out. I am someone dangerous to be around. Uh, Sorry, just one interrupted. Somebody in the chat room has said, everyone has that Steph in their head once they hear you. You think I'd be able to use this more for power over people, but I just haven't figured out yet. Anyway, we'll try it on you. Just kidding. Yeah, because I mean, because there's two steps here, right? So one of them is uh, is um, is a is a nice guy, and I'm kind of a wool knit sweater. I mean, talk about leave it to Beaver Dad, right? So uh, I'm I'm a nice guy, and I'm saying, look, he's going through tough times. He's a great worker, and the other one says, uh, okay, right. So you can you can keep him here, but it's on you, right? Uh, and I guess that means that if you screw up, that I the nice Steph takes the blame, right? Right. Right. And. What was interesting to me was that the reaction that you had to me standing up for you against someone who is kind of a jerk, right? This this bad Steph or whatever, right? The, the, it's almost like a cold, economically calculating, pragmatic Steph bot or something, right? 
but but when I stand up for you and say, yeah, it's on me. He's a great worker. He's just going through a tough time right now. He's he's a real asset and so on. You don't feel happy about that. You don't feel any relief about that. It seems like you feel annoyed. Right. So tell me a little bit more about that, because one of the things that I would expect, you know, if this were to happen in real life, if somebody was coming down hard on you and I stood up for you and accepted responsibility and blah, 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 that you'd be like, hey, you know, thank you. That was that was real nice. Right. Yeah. But what you feel is like, you know, yeah, I'm just a pawn in your games or whatever it is like you don't feel that there's anything positive that comes out of me standing up for you. Right. I. I think it's hard to because you're both the manager and the owner. So it's like that. It's like, well, sorry to be precise. <laughs> you're the manager and the owner because this is your staff, not me, right? Right. Right. So you're talking to yourself. So I'm um, the manager and the owner. So, but the 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 owner has more power than the manager, right? Yes. But uh, he's willing to accept the word of the owner about your reliability and value and worth as an employee, right? Yes. Right. And if you feel irritation when someone saves your job, it would seem to me most likely that you just don't want that job, right? Right, so l let's picture this. So let's say you had a dream where you had a million-dollar lottery ticket in your hand, and it blew away, but I grabbed it from flying over a canyon and I returned it to you, you'd be like, oh, thank you, man, right? Yes. Right, so so that would be gratitude for something that you wanted, which was the million-dollar lottery ticket, right? Until bad stuff explained to you that that was stolen from the unborn through government predation and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Just kidding. But, um, but, but in this case, your job is threatened. I step in and save your job and you feel annoyed. I mean, that just must mean that you don't want that job, right? That's just like, oh, man, why couldn't I have just gotten fired, right? Does that make any sense? Yes. Um, well, I, I, you're right. I, I didn't want the job, um, and that's why I, I quit. Um, so, in, in, sorry, so let me just point this out. So, nasty stuff here is actually more on your side than nice stuff, right? Because nice, like nasty stuff wants to fire you, and you don't want the job. Whereas nice staff is saving the job that you don't want, right? Right. So it's kind of backwards, right? Yes. Um, what's coming to my mind is I, I sort of – I find myself battling, quote, you in, in my head a lot. And sure. uh, like the you that I – I guess I project or the you that my perception of you and right. it's, it seems like a really dreadful battle. And it's like, it, it's something like Steph is like, if I'm going against Steph, then I'm totally shitting all over myself. Like, like I, I was listening to a podcast and you said, when people get angry at me, like don't get angry at me, not because it hurts me or anything like that, but be, because it's going to hurt you. And it's sort of like a, a false self. Like it's like a battle with my false self and I get stuck. I, I think I get stuck in it. It's, it's like, um, 
Okay, now I got it. Let me let me just. I want to make sure we get to the core of the stream, okay? Because the one thing that's missing here, and again, I really, really appreciate, and and hugely can't tell you how much I respect your 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 strength and courage in in talking about all of this stuff because it's it's a it's a powerful topic, and I I just I really, really, really appreciate you you bringing this topic up because you know the inner staff is is out there, uh, but look, who's missing in the stream is you. Right, because you don't want the job, but you're not saying to either Steph, "I don't want the job." You're like, "Oh, this Steph's being a jerk, and he wants to get rid of me." Oh, this Steph being a nice guy, and he saved my job. I guess I'll stay. But you're not making any decisions there, right? So you're focusing on the two Stephs because that way you don't have to focus on your choices and your actions and what you want. Does that make any sense? Yes. It doesn't matter what I would approve of or disapprove of. It matters what you would approve of or disapprove of. Right? I mean, because obviously, I mean, you're not initiating force and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter what my opinion is in, in your integrity in your life. It matters what your opinion is. And that is what is not present at the end of the stream. You're sort of like a tennis ball being batted back and forth, but but you're a tennis ball with legs, <laughs> to mix metaphors. You can choose to leave, you can choose to stay, right? And so when I say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, he's a great guy, we'll keep him and it's on me and blah, 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 you don't feel happy because you don't wanna be there, but you're not voicing any opinions throughout any of the dream, right? You're not getting in there and saying, hey, how do you not talk to me about this? Or, you know, hey, Steph, nice Steph, cardigan Steph, uh, I appreciate that. But, you know, I, I, I really don't want to sit here and fire meatballs at people's heads for the rest of my life. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, with all due respect, here's my apron, here's my two weeks notice, I'll be back tomorrow. But, you know, I'm, I'm done, right? You're not making decisions. And I don't mean this in any critical way. I'm simply observing the ecosystem of the dream. So let's go one more layer. If that's all right with you, let's do that real, uh, what was that movie that came out where they ended up in Ice Station Zebra with uh, everybody dressed in white. But, um, Inception? Sorry? Yeah, 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 that's right. So let's go one more layer, right? So did you have a parent who was a pragmatist and a parent who was more sympathetic? Did you have a cold parent and a sympathetic parent when you were growing up? I... The first thing that comes to my mind is that my father was a pragmatist and my mother was was sympathetic, but I don't, I don't think that my, I don't know, maybe, my, I don't think that my mother was truly sympathetic in, in a lot of ways, but, but if, if right, first, and, first and sorry, I was going to mention, sorry, sorry to interrupt you because uh, I just asked the question, but I was going to mention that too about the dream, because in the dream, I'm not actually like cardigan Steph is not that nice, the, the what you call the nice Steph, he's not that nice. Because he's just defending you without asking you whether you actually want to stay. He's not saying, oh, because you say, listen, I'm bored of doing this. And I'm not sitting there saying, oh, well, look, if you're bored, why don't we try this or why don't we try that? I'm just sort of saying, well, you, you, you stay here. It's not really sympathetic to you. I'm defending you without actually asking you what you want. Right. Um, I, I, I think, like, in the dream, I, I need that job. Like I need it to eat. I need it. I need like I, I, I feel like I need the job. And I think the manager Steph sort of understands like he needs this job. He can't lose like if he were to lose his paychecks, that would that would really leave him in a really screwed up position. So I don't wanna like I wanna make sure that he keeps getting the paychecks that he needs because I know he like he 
he kind of needs to feed himself. Right, but I would not like if since I'm in the dream, that would not be my approach to the problem. My approach to the problem would be why don't you have a voice in this interaction? Tell me about that, right? And and that would sort of be my approach, right? Which would be to help you to not not to sort of make a decision for you or say, you know, well now you're going to stay or, you know, even if I made that decision, it would be just to buy breathing space so that you we could talk about what was really going on for you, right? Because I mean, t- again, tell me if I'm wrong, and uh, you know, I'm out on 600 limbs here, so I could be entirely full of full of shit. But t- tell me if I'm wrong. But you must have. I mean, to me, it seems you must have grown up in an environment where choice was not encouraged in you, to say the least, where your willpower was not encouraged, where your choice and decisiveness was not uh, facilitated and encouraged. I mean, you know, am am I right? Am I wrong? Uh, you're right. You're yeah, 100 percent. I. First thing that comes to my mind is, yes, you're right. And the second thing that comes to my mind is who who doesn't ex- have that in their childhood? Like that's that is that's like the definition of everyone's childhood, pretty much. Well, my daughter doesn't have that in her childhood. I love her decisiveness. I love her willpower. I love her negotiations. I encourage and, and I don't need to encourage that. I just need to channel it and occasionally take some of the harsher edges off it. But, I mean, uh, that's our natural birthright as human beings, is to have will, to have choice, to have power in our own lives, to have decisiveness, to have negotiation, to be respected, to be loved, to be treasured, to be worshipped, to be adored, to be played with, to be encouraged, to be nurtured, to be fed all of the great food of life that can keep us full until the end of our days. That is everybody's birthright. That's what everybody should have. I agree with you. It's, It's tragically rare. But there's no way to – it's not going to be helpful to you, my friend, to dilute your personal pain in the collective pain. It doesn't work, right? That's like saying, well, I'm really hungry, but I bet you there's a hungry guy in China. Oh, good. Now I'm not hungry. Well, you're still hungry. You've just tried to pretend that it's not as bad by saying it's worse for others or it's the same for everyone. When we're growing up, we don't know anything about collective pain. We only know about our own tragedies, and that's why – I would strongly suggest do not try and dilute by saying because your first response was well everybody has that but so what if you know if everybody grows up in a war zone it doesn't mean that growing up in a war zone is okay right right it's like a normalizing technique yeah. to reduce the amount of pain it's normalizing the technique and it's um, another yet another get out of jail free card for the parents right yes well they're just like everyone else Right. Um, and I just wanted to say that but in, in relation to how, how um, Izzy is raised, I really I think you're absolutely right. And I, I, I think it's beautiful the way that you, um, you approach parenting. And uh, I just wanted to mention that I admire that very much. Well, thank you. I mean, it's it's been a huge education for me, and and thank God it works, because <laughs> you know after being uh, quite the lecturer for parents over the years, uh, I'm glad that everything that I'm talking about is working even better than I imagined it would. Um, and um, I, I mean, it's it's just fantastic. Um, so uh, so look, but, but let, let's go back to your dream, right? So I th- I think the dream is saying that uh, that you're stuck in circumstances until you gain the identity called choice, willpower, and a sense that your choices are going to have an effect on your environment. I don't get the sense from the dream or from what you've described about your life that you have much of a plan for the future. 
I, I do actually. Um, I have oh, like a, go ahead. a very laid out, uh, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the future. I think sometimes I overthink and I sort of have plans for like where I'm going to be in 20 years from now. And like, that's how in depth it gets. Um, but there's, uh, there's the thought or there's the part of me that likes the idea or wants to, uh, over the next five years to go, uh, when I have a little bit more money in my pocket to go really hard in therapy, uh, and to work, work out some, some problems that I feel like I have to work on or I want to work on, um, spend the next five years working on that. It might not take five years, but, um, at, at that point, I and also it's to, to, it's to work in therapy and save money over the next five years to the point where I could, I'll feel like I could be a parent. Um, I could, I could be a parent and then I could start thinking about perhaps, uh, a, a family. Um, and in the meantime, I'll be saving money so that the idea is that I'll buy land and I'll build sort of a self-sustaining off the grid sort of situation where I'm getting my electricity from solar panels and getting my water from the rain and growing everything that is that I consume and, and raising all the, all the cattle that I, you know, chickens and, or goats or something like that. And it's pretty much just like a self-sustaining living at which point I could bring a child into that situation and, I won't have to go to work. I could spend the first five, 10 or however many years that the child needs me to be around um, with them. And I could sort of model for them how I, like everything that I consume, I'm growing. I, I'm like, I'm responsible for everything that I consume. And I, this like, this is how a person can take care of themselves without relying on others. And uh, well, not without relying, without being dependent on others. And uh, so, so my future looks sort of something like that. Right. And I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I stand corrected. Um, what I was going to focus a little bit more on is um, in you don't negotiate with anyone in this dream, Right. And if you're working alone, then you're in a society-less environment, so to speak. And so my question would be a little bit more um, along the lines of, uh, do you feel, and I guess you've given me the answer, given that you want to live off the grid, uh, whether you felt that you might be able to rejoin society uh, at some point. And I would, I would keep that open for yourself. I mean, through... Um, you know, we need people in the trenches. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be you. There's no obligation, blah, blah, blah. But um, it would be very helpful in this sort of fight that we have on our hands to have more hands rather than few, fewer hands. And uh, I would like for there to be a possibility in your life, rather than abandoning society completely, to look at some possible ways of rejoining society and um, making a way in society. Because in this dream, you don't have a voice, Right. You don't have a negotiation. You don't have a presence. And so this seems like something you said, you know, the, when I'm debating with myself about whether you should stay or go, that you feel like a pawn in other people's games. And I would 
I mean, just look inwards and say, is that how you feel about society as a whole? Or is that how you feel about your, your sort of family uh, origin or education origin as a whole? I mean, for sure. I mean, children are, in a, as a whole, in society, pawns of everyone's game. And uh, I'd recommend a book I just finished reading called The Bee Eater about Michelle Rhee. Uh, she's in the movie Waiting for Superman. She tried to take on the Washington school boards and she wrenched up everybody's tests by getting lists of, from the principals of people, of teachers that they wanted to fire. She did manage to bunch, fire a bunch of them. She got new principals in and she really began to turn things around. And the test score achievements that she was able to affect were truly remarkable. And of course, if you stop the film right there, it's a feel-good film, but if you fast forward three frames where she, you know the, the politician who supports it gets voted out of office, the new guy comes in and she's forced to resign and everything begins to slide back into the gutter again. Um, and she, she points out in the book, or the, she's interviewed for the book, she points out, she said that uh, children are being sacrificed to keep the peace among adults, right? Because people don't want to get into fights with the teachers' unions or the principals uh, or the government or the school boards. So because people don't want to get into those conflicts, children are being sacrificed. And that was her sole focus is I don't care what's good for the adults. I care what's good for the children. And if what's good for the children is bad for certain adults, so be it. Her focus, sole focus was on the good of the children. Um, the invention of pseudo ailments, psychiatric ailments, mystery diseases for which there are no biological causes, uh, resulting in millions of American children being bombarded with these dangerous medicines, I can't even call them medicines, just these dangerous drugs, because the system won't change to adapt to children who've got far greater stimulation outside the home than inside the home, right? Outside the home, their stimulation, sorry, outside of school, their stimulation is free market. Inside the school, it's all statist. And again, here, children are pawns in the games of others, the games of profiting from the government by pharmaceutical companies and psychiatrists and other witch doctors. And uh, so you see this all over the place. Children are pawns in the games of others. And this can often happen in the family, of course, that children are pawns in the games between parents. They can be used to provoke uh, conflict between parents, to humiliate the other parent, to manipulate and control others in the family. So I would simply look at that. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You can have a community. You can rejoin a society where you can have a powerful voice and an effect in society. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of mention that. Um, I think the dream is saying that um, if you don't have a voice, then nothing that happens to you will be particularly satisfying. If you don't have a voice, if you can't make choices, if you can't affect your will on your social environment, then you will forever feel like a pawn in the games of others. And I think that you should deserve something far better than that. I the uh, the question. I, I know it's after four. Uh, if you want to end the call now, um, I understand. But the no, we can go a little over. Okay. The uh, the the thought that comes to my head is how like how how do I how do I get my own voice? How, like how do I stop letting other people control me? Uh, well, you, you have to first, I mean, the first thing I would do is recommend that you recognize that this was who you were to begin with, right? And that this was 
taken away from you and mourn that loss. That's how you get your voice back is you recognize that someone stole it. Right? If you have a treasured possession that's missing and you want to get it back, first thing you, and it's your first thing you have to recognize is, well, it's been stolen. Well, who stole it? Well, so-and-so stole it. Well, where did they put it? Well, I'm going to go get it back. Asshole. Stole my stuff. Right? And so this, uh, again, I, I am a minimalist interventionist parent. You know, I mean, it's not easy. Uh, Lord knows there's 12,000 voices in my head telling me to intervene every other second. But uh, I push those back. I negotiate. I reason with them. And I don't let them take over. Because I am rapidly curious to see how the human child develops in the absence of of interference. And I tell you, Isabella does not like my singing. She does not like my singing. And she's very, very certain about that. And she will actually cover my mouth when I sing. Uh, She is not a fan. And I think that is great. Um, She has very strong opinions about things. Uh, This is how she has developed. I mean, she, I don't know whether it's partly uh, biological, that she may have a stronger will than others, but uh, I'm, you know, I'd have to have, you know, 50 more kids to figure that out for sure, or have more evidence of that. But I believe that we're all born with a voice, and we're all born with a strong willpower. We're all born with a clarity of purpose and desire, and we're also all born with the discipline of that which gives us productive and useful pleasure, like learning how to walk, learning, she's trying to, she's really, really working hard to figure out letters uh, at the moment. And uh, she's just doing a fantastic job. And to recognize that this was your birthright, this is who you were born to be. And tragically and awfully, it was taken away by us as a combination of factors. It's, it's, it's really three, it's religion, school, or, or family. And sometimes it's all three. And you mourn that loss. And through mourning of that loss, you uncover the voice that was taken or you recover the voice that was taken. Uh, But recognize that where you ended up, A, is not your fault, and B, was not right. And then you can begin to recover it from there. I I have a helpless part coming up, and I don't know if you want to hear it because uh, part of me says you're going to start talking about how when you were in your 20s, you used to walk 50 miles to work as a gold panner in the freezing cold Alps on the top of a mountain. And, you know, don't don't get helpless on me. I, you know, I, I used to take the bus and did all this hard stuff. So so don't get helpless. Um, and I, I, I kind of worry that that's going to happen. But I the, the helplessness sort of says that something was stolen from me. There's, I don't see how to get it back. Like I don't, uh, even though you just explained to me how, how I would get it back, it's like. Wait a second. Are you saying that you can have a personality internalized from podcasts, but you have no idea where your true self is? See, you made up a me layered in with your parents and you never even met me. Well, you sure as hell met your original true self because you were that person. So don't tell me that you are lost when you can create a personality out of bits and bytes and burps from the internet called podcasts. You can create a personality and split that personality. And that's how creative you can be in the construction of an identity, but you can't get back to the basic honesty of who you were. I don't believe you. 
if you have that level of fertility and creativity within you, fuck it. If you can't find your true self, just make a true self. (laughs) You can make one too. It's simply, it's just whatever grows from the seed called honesty and the watering of the tears of loss. Whatever grows from that is your true self. I, um, I, and if you can make two me's, you can make one you, right? Right. I, um, I, I've been around, I, I've been listening to FDR for like three and a half years now. And I, I feel like at a certain point, maybe after a year and a half or so, I, I feel like I was really connected with myself. I feel like I was finding my true self and I was, a lot of happiness was, was being generated and um, I felt like I could be honest and I felt really open um, and I, I think there, I feel like I've, I've relapsed from that and I've gone back, I've kind of reverted back to where I started at the beginning somewhat where it's sort of like, it's, it's that, it's, it's thinking that, you know, it's, it's like a certain amount of, um, like hatred towards, towards what, what you're talking about, what, what the podcast equal up to. It's like my, my parents sort of that, that whole, like my parents weren't that bad. Um, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, like that, that nihilistic, it's sort of like a nihilistic sort of thing. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, look, this is how, this is how, this is how culture and lies and superstition survive is they drive reason and virtue into the woods, right? Is they provoke hatred, despair, futility, horror, and a desperate desire for the second-hand integrity called solitude, right? Because if they can drive you into the woods, they stay in control of the world. You You know, there's a scene, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club, one of the most amazing portrayals of nihilism uh, in in all of art. There's a scene in, in Fight Club where the main guy, the non-Brad Pitt guy, uh, he um, he punches himself in order to control his boss, right? I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's this very powerful scene. He's just, uh-huh. He punches himself. And in my experience, one of the things that you have to fight when you are on the path to truth and virtue and social effectiveness is you have to fight the horror of seeing how people conduct themselves in the world. Because when you see people doing all the horrible things that they do, and I mean, maybe I see it a little bit more than most because of some of the listeners uh, who's not that they've been doing horrible things, but horrible things have been done unto them, of course. But also, you know, just the general, general comments and feedback that I receive. And I receive a lot of positive feedback, don't get me wrong, but there's an awful lot of just negative, hostile, weird, creepy, nasty, blah, 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 right? And I know, I know for a fact that people are doing themselves horrible things by acting in this way. They are punching themselves in the face. And anybody with any compassion 
and any humanity can only stand to watch people punching themselves in the face for so long before you just want to flee the whole fucking spectacle, right? Right. And that's partly why this kind of masochistic destructive behavior is on full display, is that it drives those with sensitivity and humanity out of the social conversation. Because you see how people behave and how they interact and what they justify and what they praise and what they worship and how much they lie and how much they twist and how much they deceive and how revolting and putrid their essence has become. And eventually you feel that staying in society is like attempting a soulful slow dance in a field full of half-rotted zombies, and you just want to flee the entire mausoleum, right? Yeah. It's... It, this is, what you're saying is, is reminding me of... <clears throat> I was mentioning before how uh, I sort of felt like I had turned around and I had, I had sort of found my, myself and was feeling a lot happier and a lot better and conversations were going much smooth, much more smoothly with people and um, I found that I could be very helpful and I felt, I guess, I, there was a, a pull back to my original position and it's, I, during, I, I sort of, I felt like a relapse and it, my experience of it was almost like surreal. It was, I felt like it was an almost like an out of body experience. Like I, like the world around me was very odd and strange. And I, at the end of that, at the end of, of that sort of feeling, like I, I, I didn't even recognize my own apartment building that I had been in for three years. It was like, this place looks different. This place looks weird. Um, and I sort of just ended up back where I started um, and so <clears throat> I, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I, I was trained a certain way and I worked really hard to, <clears throat> to, to change that, to reshape how I was trained, but there's like a pull back, um, like something. <laughs> no, it's not a pullback. Back. It's a pushback. It's a pushback. Like, can I tell you what happened? Sure. What happened was you tried to bring truth to the world. Before, you were just trying to bring truth to yourself. And as long as you're just trying to bring truth to yourself, the world will pretty much leave you alone. But the moment you try to bring truth to the world, then you get the second wave counterattack, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, were you engaging philosophically with people? Were you attempting to, not necessarily consciously or with a program, but were you attempting to bring your truth into your relationships during this time? Yeah, and I recall feeling like, like what, what I was trying to do for a while was, was actually RTR with the people that I had in my life and, and, and tell them how I feel. And um, I felt really positive about it, but at the same time, I felt very nervous and insecure about it. Like, this is really vulnerable stuff. This is gonna, you know, this this basically puts me in a position where I'm tied down and put put an axe in the other person's hand because they could just chop off my head. Um, 
when I'm sure. in such a vulnerable position. But at the same time, I felt very freeing. Like I felt like now I have freedom. I could I could tell people how I feel. Um, but and how did that work out in your relationships? Was it sustainable? It, it well, it, it 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 didn't stay. It didn't stick um, for some right. reason. I um, I regressed um, back, and I remember. No, no, no. Sorry. At oh. this point, at this point of the conversation, you must focus on the choices of others, not on yourself, because you attempted to bring honesty and truth, and vulnerability, and who you really are into your relationships, right? And how did the other people react in the long run? Not with curiosity and or empathy. Uh, how did they react? I, the reaction I got was sort of uh, standoffish. Um, like the people didn't want to hear what I was saying. People didn't Mm -hmm. want me to be saying what I was saying. Uh, right. There was like a vague sort of like they, like they would, they would be bored with what I was saying or, um, you know, say that I'm always trying to, um, I'm, I'm always like, like I'm, like I'm trying to be so black and white, but the world isn't like that. And so that, that sort of response is, is what I would be getting. That's all intellectual. What was their emotional response? How did they feel when you were talking about your true thoughts and feelings? Anxious. Anxiety. Right. 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 And my belief, my analysis of that situation would be that by being with honest with them, it provokes anxiety because it exposes the degree to which they are not honest either with others or with themselves. And then they feel really weird. But what they do is they try and put that weirdness into you so that you take it. Right. And that then you end up feeling so weird because you're weirding out other people or other people feel weird in the face of your honesty, you end up feeling so weird that you don't even recognize your own apartment building. Right. I... How how do you... How how can I prevent that from happening? Like, how how do I prevent myself from internalizing... I have to prevent that from happening every day. So I will speak with some authority, at least from my own situation here, is you have to be honest. You have to be more honest. Which is you don't pick up the bags of crazy that people hand to you. Don't pick it up. You know, we have this instinct. So someone comes up and holds out their hand, we just shake their hand, right? We just shake their hand. It's an, it's a, you have to really focus to not do it, right? So automatic. 
especially if it's someone we know. Actually, right? for me, it's more like uh, my first reaction is get the fuck away from me. Uh, so, excuse my language. If someone yeah, comes up to me with their hand out, it's like, what do you like? You're scheming. You're manipulative. There's something wrong with you. You're trying to get an in. There's no in here. You're not I'm a pawn in your game, as the dream said, right? Right. Right. Okay, so, um, but you did let other people's craziness into your mind after you were honest with them, right? Yeah. Because you felt weird. You felt strange. You felt disembodied, out-of-body experience, you said, right? Yeah, that, that's what it felt like. It was really, uh, like, reality was just not, it wasn't computing. Like, there was something odd going on. Right, right. And that's other people's experience, not yours. That's other people's experience, not yours. So when you're honest with someone who's lived a false life, then they face a fork in the road, a crossroad, so to speak. They're either going to say, shit, I've lived a fake life. I've lived a false life. I'm going to start being honest. I'm going to, this person has really woken me up. I'm out of the matrix. I'm going to grow. I'm going to charge. Let's go, right? Or they're going to slam tight the briefest crack in the mental doors that lead to a perception of the true world. They're going to retreat back into fantasy. They're going to repeat back into slander. They're going to retreat back into ad hominems, and they're going to work as hard as they can, my friend, to make you feel like a freak, to make you feel weird. Because if you don't feel weird, they feel weird, and they do not have the ego strength for that. They are going to work as hard as they can to normalize themselves and to denormalize you. You're weird, you're obsessed, you're shallow, well, you're, you're just, you're, you know, you, you know, what's come over you? What's the matter with you? What's wrong with you? What kind of weird shit are you into? You're trying to play tricks with me, with dishonesty. I don't like it. We already talked about this. Why are we bringing it up again? Right. I mean... There's so many things that people will say to try and drive the nails of crazy into your forehead so that you walk around Christ-like, bleeding and staggering all the time, right? Right. So, uh, sorry, I feel like uh, sadness growing up. It's, I feel like, uh, that, like my eyes are getting teary thinking about yeah, because it's tragic, because it is a sacrifice. People who love us, who say that they love us, should not try to make us feel crazy or weird or broken or wrong or bad or dissociated or freaky when we're merely honest with them. That's not the actions of love, right? It shows so often how shallow and tenuous these so-called relationships really are. I mean, if somebody says that they love me, the word me is in the sentence. The word love is in the sentence. Therefore, when I am honest, if I bring my more and more of my true self to the relationship, they should love me even more, right? You know, it's like if I eat nothing but donuts, there's more to love, right? 
they should love you more if you bring more of yourself to the relationship. But what happens when you do that? Are they happy? They they withdraw or they want you to withdraw or they want you to stop whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, somebody in the chat room eloquently put, shit gets fucked up. Because we're supposed to have this dance of manipulative distance called relationships. And the moment you actually reach out and try and touch someone, do you know what they feel? Do you know what somebody feels when you reach out to try and genuinely touch themselves? Do you know what they feel? They feel your hand pass right through them. And when you're standing in front of somebody who reaches out for you and their hand passes right through you, one of you has to be a ghost, right? One of you has to be a ghost. And how many people are willing to look in the mirror, see emptiness and say, I am the ghost and you are alive? No. I am alive and you are the ghost. That's what people say, right? Yeah. Um, not, not in those words, but that's pretty much what they're insinuating or that's... That's what they're acting off of. That's the premise that they're acting off of. Right. Right. And that's a, that's a terrifying thing for people to experience, right? Yeah. I, I, it's, it's also sort of, I think, terrifying for me also. Oh, absolutely. Of course it is. That's completely terrifying. It's, complete, it's like the sixth sense. I see dead people. Right? I thought I had relationships with real life people. And they're paper thin, angry, empty ghosts. Right. Uh, I thought I was surrounded by love. I'm surrounded by the dead. I, I think I live in a city of sorry, I live in a city of ghosts, and that's why your apartment building looks weird to you. And that's why you phrased it as an out-of-body experience. That's a ghost is out of body, right? Yes. The um the problem is I it's I I feel like I internalize that. Um, like that becomes a part of me and then I'm, I become a ghost sort of like, sure. I don't even recognize myself. Um, and of course. I was just, I guess I'm wondering, um, I, I, how do I stop? Look, how do you stop, stop that? How do I stop you have, being look, a pawn? How, how do I... There's only, there's only two things that you can do, and they're both philosophical. Reason and evidence. Reason and evidence. Reason and evidence. That is the lifeblood of the human soul. That is what keeps us alive. That is what keeps us vital. That's what keeps us strong. That's what keeps us protected. So if people are making you feel crazy, go back to reason and evidence. 
Go back. That's your anchor. That's your north star. That's your compass. That's your gravity. That's your firm footing. Reason and evidence. So people say, you're being weird. Okay. What's your definition of weird? Go back to reason and evidence. Ask them for the reason and the evidence behind their assertions. Drive them back that way. And one or two things will happen. People will either say, well, uh, here's what I view as, as weird, and here's the reasons why, and here's what I view as normal, here's the disparity, here's the evidence, and here's the causality in your behavior, and blah, 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 which will almost never happen. Or they'll just switch to another attack. Oh, now you're just trying to manipulate me. Okay, uh, can you define to me what manipulation is uh, and explain to me how it is that I'm doing that? They won't have an answer. They just use words, right? They just use words. Like monkeys throwing shit. They don't have any idea really what they're doing. It's just an instinct. Just go back to reason and evidence. Explain to me why you're coming to this perspective. Explain to me why you're coming to this conclusion. Explain to me why you are placing upon me this label. And most people, how many people in the world are going to have a clear answer to that? Well, no one who uses the word weird is going to have a good answer as to why they're using that word weird because the word weird is an ad hom. It's an ad hominem. It's an insult. Insults are not used by people who have good philosophical reasoning. Doesn't mean I've never used insults, but hopefully I've used the reasoning first, right? <laughs> and I've certainly not used insults with people that I say that I love. So when people are trying to stick labels up your ass, clench, <laughs> right? And say, no, 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 no. Explain to me how this label is, how I deserve this label, by what objective process you have come to give me this label. Reason and evidence, reason and evidence. Don't start down this path and then drop those weapons. Tell me how. Tell me why. Explain to me how this label is valid, how this label fits. And then explain to me how calling me weird is supposed to be helpful. But if people can't answer, and if people refuse to answer, and if people continue to manipulate, take several slow and steady steps backward. Right. Because they're not dead. They're undead. And they be hungry. What do zombies eat, my friend? Human flesh? No. Brains! Right. Right? Identity, self, integrity, personhood. And for some reason, there's a, there's a part of me that wants to help those people the most. Well, then do go and call them up and help them. But don't go in without reason and evidence. And don't go in without an exit strategy. Go help them, you know? I mean, I find that troll to human, zombie to person is such a transmogrification that if you can achieve anything, it's almost always completely temporary. Because the amount of work it takes to rehumanize yourself when you're in that state, it is years. 
It is years. I will tell you that up front. It is years. And it is years of highly dedicated, often very expensive therapy and journaling and self-knowledge. And it involves a revolution in all of your personal relationships. It involves a revolution in your business relationships. It involves a revolution in your romantic relationships. It involves a revolution with your children. It involves significant restitution to those you have wronged. It includes no longer staying in abusive relationships, manipulative, destructive relationships where truth cannot be because where there is, there is no truth, there is no relationship. It's a big-ass, long, difficult, expensive, time-consuming process. All you can do is launch that ship. You cannot sail it for people. You cannot help people in that way. You can get them started. That's why I always say to people, go to a therapist. I can't help people that way. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, any of those things. I'm interested in philosophy, so I can point out logical contradictions, and I can point out the insights from my experience, but I cannot save anybody. I can point them in the direction of the resources that I think will help them, which is why I'm always nagging people to go into therapy, to do self-work, to analyze their own dreams, to write down their own thoughts and experiences, to commit to honesty in their relationships. Because that is, according to the science that I've read or the experts that I've interviewed, the most effective, most long-term, most sustainable, and least medically destructive approach to take. But you cannot save people. You cannot save them. You can say, the light is over that huge fucking mountain. And you think that mountain's huge, you wait till you see the one that's on the other side of that, and the one that's on the other side of that one. And after years of bitter, grueling, ice-shattering, clamp-on, twisting, nail-dropping, chilly hiking, you will get to the promised land. But it's over there. But I can't carry you. I can't carry you. And if people look up and say, I don't care if there are 20 mountains after that, I'm getting there because I'm worth it and I want to live before I'm dead. Then you can travel with them and you can share rations and you can share heat and you can share tents, but you cannot carry them. Right. I, uh, this has been very, very useful to me. And I, I know you can't carry me over the mountains, but I certainly appreciate the care package that you're, that you're sending me off with. Um, I, I really Yeah, I can it. give you a map and a view of the destination that I can tell you here as well. And I wish I could. I wish I could. But, but it's, it's not possible because you cannot strengthen someone's legs by carrying them, right? Right. It's right. If you have physical rehab to do, it doesn't make any sense for the other person to move your limbs, right? That you have to strengthen them yourself. It's just, it's not possible. I can't lose weight for you by eating less. Right. I, 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 I don't know what to say. I, I don't think, uh, I, I think that you've pretty much, um, hit the nail on the head in this call. And I, I really appreciate your questions and your time um, and, and for going over the, um, 
than the normally scheduled time. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to listen to this again because a lot of it, uh, a lot of it got drowned in my, in my nervousness. Um, but uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, you're welcome. And I really, really appreciate you bringing this topic up. I mean, I've been uh, wanting to do a dream for a while because they're just so fertile. And I think we can all agree based on the comments that um, that we got in the chat room and, and all that. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly fertile conversation. I can tell you thousands and thousands of people are going to hugely benefit from this conversation. So I just really want to express my intense admiration for having the courage and strength to bring this up because we are we are increasingly susceptible to feeling alone and to fleeing the world. And it's not going to work. <laughs> we need to stay. We need to stand. And um, I'm really, really... Uh, thankful that you brought this topic up and i'm thankful to all the listeners i mean it's what an amazing show what an incredible show this is i mean we're talking about all of the wildest topics we have a great debate about ip we talk about a dream we talk about self-knowledge our relationship to society truth honesty virtue in relationships what an incredible show you people take me on a wild ride every single week and i thank you thank you for it so much and have yourselves a wonderful week i will talk to you soon